In June 2020, we released Episode 6, which was our spotlight on Stuart Gordon, the horror director who sadly passed away earlier this year. We spotlighted five of his movies, one of which being his 1995 horror classic, Castle Freak. Then, in December of 2020, the streaming platform Shudder released a brand new remake and reimagining of that movie. We checked it out. Based on the runtime of this episode, you can see we had a lot to say about it. So we hope you enjoy this discussion of director Tate Steinzeich's 2020 remake of Castle Freak on this surprise bonus episode of Scary Stuff. And welcome to the surprise bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I'm here with co-host Nick Leamy. How y'all doing tonight? And co-host Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Hi. <laughs> and we are thrilled to be talking to you about 2020's Castle Freak. Back in episode six, we reviewed the original, and a remake just came out, so we, we had to check this out. Had to feels like a strong <laughs> descriptor here. It was only appropriate... We did the whole episode on Stuart Gordon, and then Barbara Crampton, of all people, goes and makes a castle freak. I mean, how can we not do an episode on that? I mean, we could have just not done it. (laughs) We could have just watched the movie and been like, huh, and then moved on with our lives completely. This is going to be fun. But that's not how we operate here. So I, you know, I'm joking. I didn't, obviously, I'll tell you right up front, I didn't care for this movie, but <laughs> we all were interested in it coming out. Like we said, we had just done the, the Stuart Gordon, which we had mixed opinions on the original Castle Freak, but there's no denying that it is certainly a notable classic and a genre favorite and one that has a lot of, you know, significance in terms of, if nothing else, creature effects. Oh, yeah. So the fact that it was being redone and produced by Barbara Crampton, who was one of the stars in the original, it was something that was definitely of note and definitely something that we... we... So I want to say we were looking (laughs) forward to it. And I feel like I was, in fact, looking forward to watching this film. Because sometimes, and this is a peculiar effect of doing a podcast, especially a review podcast, is that I can trick myself into thinking I liked films that I didn't like. For instance, I enjoyed doing the Stuart Gordon episode. I didn't like any of the films, but I enjoyed, well, that's not true. I kind of like dolls. But, you know, doing the social media and all the posts, you know, you kind of get so familiar with something, you get used to it and you get, you know, that kind of stuck in your head. And it feels not necessarily like you like it, but you look back fondly. And I look back fondly at doing that episode and having listened to it again recently. It's it's fun. I Look, I like listening to our podcast. I think we're hilarious. Nobody can make me laugh like me. And so basically in my mind, it's like, oh, Castle Freak. Yeah, we just did. This will be a fun to watch me. But in reality, it's like I didn't like Castle Freak, the original. Why the fuck would I think I would like the remake? <laughs> but this movie solved your biggest problem with the original Castle Freak. Which, so the original Castle Freak is set in Italy. This one's set in Albania. So we're no longer worrying about Italian police procedure. Exactly. Like we went on for 15 <laughs> minutes about in episode six i don't think you see a single cop anywhere in this film it's great no (laughs) that's a good point you don't see a single cop in there because the cop role is essentially played by some other dude who is just a dude Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, there's more to, and we'll get into it when we go through the uh, the full spoilerific rundown of this film. But the local representation is not the police, right? Yeah, and, and let me tell you, I've got some fun facts about Albania that we're going to be talking <laughs> about tonight. <laughs> I guess we should just say up front then that uh, I I kind of like this. <laughs> <laughs> now that that makes sense. Now I figured this was going to go absolutely one of two ways. Either Nick was going to hate it more than Eric and I, like just completely, absolutely loathe this film. And that wouldn't have surprised me. Or he was going to like it because of some of the connections in it. All right, look, that sounds more binary. Like, you know, of course, those are the only two options. Love it or hate it. We're a film <laughs> review podcast. What I'm saying is I didn't think Nick would be neutral. Scary stuff podcast where there is no middle ground. <laughs> I was not going to be bored. Yes. He was not going to be bored. He was not going to be neutral or indifferent. This was either going to be I Know What You Did Last Summer for him uh, or the original <laughs> Castle Freak for him is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you haven't listened to our 90s episode, I Know What You Did Last Summer is probably the movie Nick has liked least in our entire podcast or at least just, has been most uh, mad about. And I like bringing it up every episode because he, he like blinks his eyes and he puts his <laughs> hand to his temple and then he covers his eyes and you can't see it, but we're on Zoom and it's fun to watch. <laughs> It just had so much potential. Uh, no, go listen to the episode. I'm not complaining here. See, 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 see. <laughs> what I'm saying is Nick has buttons and I like pushing them. No, this is going to be interesting because it sounds like we haven't talked about this a lot before coming into this recording. So it sounds like we're probably going to land about where I was expecting in terms of who's where on the spectrum of this movie. Before we get into the plot in earnest, so just a couple quick things. A is... Like we always do, this is going to be a full spoiler podcast, and this is a very, very recent movie, so just mentioning that up front. Yeah, if you have any intention of watching this, just stop now, listen to us when you're done watching to it, yes. Although, to be fair, you know, there's spoilers as a concept, sure, you don't want to blow the movie for people, but there's also a different concept where you, you watch something so other people don't have to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I feel like this is distinctly more in that camp than the spoilers camp. And to that effect, the second half of what I wanted to note was if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to see this, if you have seen the original Castle Freak and you like it, I would say go ahead and give this a shot. Yes. But I come from the camp of if I like something and someone does an, a variation on that thing, then I feel compelled to check it out. Just the curiosity of nothing else will get the better of me. So I think this film is worth giving a shot if you have some fondness for the original Castle Freak, because seeing what they keep, seeing the stuff that they change up, conceptually, it does some interesting things, sort of. That seems reasonable to me. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I know Nick calls me the horror grump, and I'm certainly going to put in my, my work on that nickname this bum, episode. Bum, 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 bum. I tried real hard to find as much positive about this as I could. Again, like I've mentioned before, I go into every one of these episodes hoping and wanting to like what I'm going to watch. I never want to dislike anything. Like, we don't do this where we pick, you know, these movies because we know one of us will hate them to create, I don't know, what is it, drama on the podcast or good listening? Yeah, no, no, We no. genuinely want to like the films. Uh, Nick knows what I hate, and I think he picks movies based on that. But that's not like intentionally creating drama. We're still hoping I'll like them. What you hate isn't hard to figure out, though. Like, I look at a movie and I ask three questions. One, oh, I'm so excited for this. Is it on a low budget? No, he might not like it. Okay, well, that's I like low budget stuff. That's what I'm saying. If it's not low budget, you might not like it. <laughs> so then I ask the next question. I think I just got called a hipster. 
<laughs> then ask the next question. Me a hipster. <laughs> no, he got called a found footage fanatic. <laughs> the next question is, does this movie have some song that will carry Jake through the entire film? This one does not, which ends with the last question. Oh, you're going to enjoy my song fact for this episode. Oh, yes, you does are. Does this movie <laughs> have Sarah Michelle Gellar in it? <laughs> this movie has none of those three things i was like oh jake's gonna hate this mm. that last one's a good rule <laughs> i don't know about the other two completely but that last one's a good rule <laughs> she's awesome you would have liked the original castle freak so much more if it just had some boston songs in he it. would never had to whip my son but i know someone who has <laughs> Look, if they played the Boston's Where Did You Go every time the freak left the room, fucking A. I would have been all over that film. It failed to do so. So, And I'll tell you this. This film, this remake, also no Boston songs. That's why you didn't like it. Yeah, right. Well, I, I didn't like it because it's a bad movie. Sure. And I have, I guess I maybe I sometimes have a lower tolerance for movies that are bad. Like, I don't necessarily enjoy... I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just sound like a snob. Whatever. Perhaps a hipster? I'm just saying I like <laughs> Merlot better than Boone's Farm. And this was Boone's Farm. <laughs> Sometimes I still want to get drunk, though. So, you know, here we are. The hipster has spoken. <laughs> but it, it, to be fair, I think it's conceptually very interesting, this film. Mm -hmm. And I like what they wanted to do. I would imagine I the script. All right. So look, I'm just going to throw this out there. I pin most of the blame for this on the director. Yes. I think if I just read the script, it, well, depending, there's a couple of scenes I think are just truly ghastly. But I think the overall idea and the reimagining that it does of the original plot is very interesting. And as a fan of the Cthulhu mythos, I loved that they tried to really jam that in there it kind of felt like fan service a little bit but look i'm a fan so service me <laughs> to be fair what it really felt like they did was they took a short story the original short story and merged it with the dunwich horror and i thought that was actually done pretty well and not too bad my biggest complaint about the film honestly is the casting i 100 feel they went out of their way to get 20 somethings that were hot and thought that will sell the movie if they had actually cast these people with 30 to 50 year age range I think the movie could have done a lot better. Hmm. Party scene would have been weird if they were all 50. That's <laughs> You would need to change the party scene up. But I mean, the point is, <laughs> I feel that their roles in all of this would have been much better served by actual 30 to 50 year olds. Like Professor alone should have been 50. Easy. <laughs> it's just everything about him screamed ready to plumb the depths of knowledge and find the things I, I don't know yet. But, you know, he's just this kind of like comes off as this arrogant, pissy hipster. <laughs> the characters weren't old and bitter like us, so I just couldn't identify with this movie. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about how aging them forward would have changed it. I can see what you're saying. I think it would have to be just an entirely different movie. Like you couldn't do the uh, same kind of script and yes, the same no. kind of vibe. I think you could easily have had her acts to be the same. It just has his drunken stupidity. You have to take the party scene out, essentially. You have to take the party scene out, and you have to tone down the we're all drunken hooligans bits. But if you do that, everything else can stay. I don't know you have to tone that down too much, because, <laughs> Nick, you and I are in that age range, and we are drunken hooligans. Yeah, but we're not. 
<laughs> yes. You can't but... argue that point. There's no denying that. <laughs> I can tell some stories. We'll lose some listeners, but I'll tell some stories. Or maybe we'd gain some listeners. I don't know. We are drunken hooligans, but we're not like, you know, party all night, every night hooligans. That's because we have jobs. It's not because we wouldn't. Not the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> I, and that, that's an interesting thought. I'm not sure I agree with you, but I do see where your, your thinking on that is. But let's bring this back, because you guys mentioned the director, who is Tate Steinziek, who I believe is most well-known for Addiction, a 60s love story. Hey, he's mostly known as a makeup artist. Yeah, he's probably mostly known for his appearance on the Sci-Fi Channel show Face Off. Oh! He was a two-time finalist. So yeah, he is predominantly a makeup artist. He worked on Knock Knock, Sharknado 2. He did the puppets on Puppet Master, Littlest Reich. Scare Package he worked on. And then he was second unit director on Puppet Master, Littlest Reich. There's a note on his IMDb that he was worked on an animation department character design for Oculus, but I'm not sure what that means, so I'm going to have to dig into that one more. I didn't have a chance to watch his feature film, Addiction, 60s Love Story, before this, but I did watch one of his short films. So he has short films, which are My Winter's Coat, The Terrible Tale of Jacqueline Torn, Guts, and then he has a short film called Clown. Did anyone watch the short film called Clown? No, of course not. The first person you see in it is Timothy Chalamet. That's unexpected. <laughs> you see Timothy Chalamet, and I think it was shot circa 2008. So it's little kid Timothy Chalamet in like, you know, messed up clown makeup. And it's all about him being tormented for the, it's a six minute short film and he's in the first three minutes of it. And Norman Reedus is in it. What? <laughs> There's some interesting casting in it. But yeah, it was totally Timothy Chalamet before he was famous was in this random little short film. It's on YouTube if anyone wants to check it out. Huh. That's wild. Look, I don't, I don't want to shit on him too much, but this felt like the kind of movie that would get made by somebody who is a makeup artist in charge. Uh, like, the special effects I thought were good. The gore was really well done. It was on point. It just... Let me just throw this out there. This is this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but, like, one of the things that bothered me about it was, was kind of the lighting. Yes. Everything <laughs> is right there in front of you. There's almost no subtlety. It's like, you, you see the freak pure as day most of the time and mm -hmm. that's the kind of choice you make if you really want to show off your gore and your, your all this stuff the problem is is when you're making a movie in a horror movie that you really need to leave something to the imagination and this movie fails to do that completely it's a terrific gore and makeup reel but as a movie and as in you know, suspense it feels very much like a first effort i hear where you're coming from and i agree for the most part though to play devil's advocate it's a little hard to play suspense and what does it look like when you basically it's a remake. I mean, we've seen the damn movie. Yes, it's a person who looks like they've been beaten to shit and have like a messed up face. So, you know, it's uh, showing it early wasn't too much for me. Nope. I disagree with that entirely. You can still make a good movie even if, you know, it's a remake. <laughs> yeah. That's and sense. I actually think I don't think the lighting of the monster specifically is the problem. Right. It's a problem. But I think the lighting in general is a big problem in this film. You know what it felt like to me? Did you ever see the movie Summer School? Way back, Mark Harmon? I haven't. I need to after it came up in our interview with Dave Lawson Jr. And he mentioned it. So <laughs> it's on my list. Been a while. Two of the characters in that are really big into gore and horror. In, in the 80s. And this felt like if those two dudes made a movie, this is what you would get. Which isn't to my tastes, obviously, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's to nobody's tastes. I think gorehounds would enjoy this a lot more than I did, is what I'm saying. Probably. Yeah. Two quick things. One thing on, on Tate Steinzik and then something on the writer. So for, for the director, Tate Steinzik, if 
you see the movie and you want to hear him talk about it more on December the 3rd, there's a podcast called the Nick Taylor horror show. And he did an interview with Tate Steinzik. It was actually recorded back in March and they sat on it until the movie was out. So that's how long it took for you know them to find a release date and put the movie out on shutter. But he talked about the movie there. I've got a couple bits we'll mention during it, but the main thing I wanted to mention was that castle freak. He notes was his gateway movie to Stuart Gordon. Like, mm. That was the first Stuart Gordon movie he saw. So he wasn't coming at Stuart Gordon from reanimator and then seeing the rest of his filmography. Castle freak was his in. Right. So he's part of that generation of folks who castle freak is kind of a definitive, you know, VHS discovery for them. Hmm. So that's his into Stuart Gordon. The writer of this is Kathy Charles. Now she is a novelist, wrote a young adult novel called John Belushi is dead and was also on the blacklist for a screenplay. I think this is the first completed movie from one of her screenplays. She is on an episode of the Write On podcast, W-R-I-T-E, which is the podcast put on by Final Draft, and it's the April 6th episode. So if you want to hear her talk about the movie, go check it out. It's about a 45-minute chat. It's a really interesting conversation. The main things I wanted to mention from it was she talks about seeing Castle Freak and what her approach to the movie was. And she said, all right, well, my approach was taking the original Castle Freak. And I said, all right, I want to find an element of the original that I wished got more screen time. And in my opinion, it was the daughter. So I was going to put the daughter to the forefront. Second thing I wanted to do was embrace the Lovecraft elements of the, and which it very much does. We'll get into oh, that as we go. Very successful there. And then the third thing she wanted to do was she said, I felt that the Castle Freak concept was a very natural fit for a giallo sort of feel and she wanted to kind of approach it like a giallo movie and which absolutely comes through in the lighting of this in several sequences now i mentioned up front giallo is one of my blind spots i've seen a handful of argento but not nearly as much giallo stuff as i would like so but if Ditto. you listen to this podcast you can fix that because shutter just put up a big block of Jalo and Mario Bava movies this month for Christmas. So if you're listening and you want to fill in those gaps like I intend to, there's plenty in there. So because we already talked about the lighting, we're going to talk about it more as we go. But part of the, the lighting choices in this movie stem from, it seems, the script's intent to impart a Jalo colorful element to some parts of the film. Hmm. That all plays. Yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, the only thing I have noted here for uh, Kathy Charles is that she was the sound facilities coordinator for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I love. Love that yep. movie. So, <laughs> and Machete Maiden's Unleashed, which is also awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she's worked with uh, Guillermo del Toro, so that gets mentioned, plus is in my book. Well, while we're talking crew, I'll mention real quick just a, a, another notable crew member. The composer for this movie is Fabio Fritzi who was the composer on Lucio Fulci's Zombie, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and he also did Pieces, which is a favorite of mine. So if we're talking about the, the composer, there's, I'm going to bring out music a little bit. There's a song in here by a band called Gunship. I love Gunship. Yeah, I thought they were kind of interesting. They appeared in a documentary narrated by John Carpenter called Rise of the Synths. Ooh. So there's at least a John Carpenter connection to this. Nice. They have a couple albums. Their second album... And this was kind of fun because I was reading about him. I didn't know much about Gunship. It's called Dark All Day. And it features collaborations with Will Wheaton, for one. Fun. Richard K. Morgan, who was the author of Altered Carbon. Ooh. And Tim Capello. Either you know who Tim Capello is? Top of my head, no. No. You do know who he is. And you have seen the film he's famous for. 
He's the saxophonist from Lost Boys. <laughs> I still believe. Because <laughs> one of my notes in that opening sequence is like, oh, hey, saxophone. All right. I noted that during the opening dance sequence. I didn't know it was that dude. That's I, I don't know if he's the one in that song, but I know he worked with Gunship. So. That's fantastic. Uh, it's got to be the dance club song. It's got to be. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was just fun. It's like, oh, hey, this is connected to Lost Boys and Will Wheaton somehow. All right. Rock on. That's awesome. Well, there's a lot of people connected to this. Yeah, well, Barbara Crampton produced it, Yep, like we mentioned, and I think that probably got people involved or at least interested. I actually have a kind of a neat quote from her. Real quick, for those uh, who may not hear the earlier episodes, Barbara Crampton, very popular and famous for Reanimator, Your Next, and of course, the original Castle Freak. Yes. This is from a, a Birth Movies Death interview with her. Describing herself as a creative producer on Castle Freak, Crampton has been on the project since the beginning of its development. There were many rewrites, she explains, and they asked me to give notes on the story and the characters. That was really fun for me. I was able to be part of the team with Tate, Kathy, and Dallas and Amanda, helping everybody mold the story to the place we wanted it to go. Our goal was to ground it in a real relationship, much like the first one, but with different people, and to expand on the Lovecraft connection so we can give fans a little something more than maybe they got in the first film. I'm going to be on set while we're shooting, being a creative person and supporting Tate with anything he needs me for. I thought that was kind of cool that she really was very hands-on involved in this. It wasn't yeah. just a name that they, you know, kind of attached to it. And I guess she was in Albania with him. She was, yeah. Tate mentions that in his interview on the Nick Taylor Horror Pod that she was there. She was absolutely hands-on. Okay, so another thing. This was all filmed in Albania. Does Albania trigger anything for you guys? Because every time I hear the word, it triggers something for me. And I'm not sure. I, I mean, I know... it makes me think of Anvilvania, but... Okay. <laughs> So neither of you grew up watching Cheers, right? A handful of episodes. I've seen most of Uh, Cheers. Not religiously. Okay. So in, I think it's the first season, it's one with Coach. There's an episode where Coach is helping Ted Danson study for something. And he teaches him to remember things by putting them in song. Now, I first saw this episode probably when it aired or, you know, around there. I probably didn't get as a kid, but I was pretty heavy into Cheers when I was younger. Whenever I hear the word Albania, in my head plays the song that Coach sings for him, which is Albania, Albania, you border on the Adriatic. Your land is mostly mountainous and your chief export is chrome. 100% of the time when I hear the word Albania, (laughs) that plays in my head. I have known since I was a very small person that the chief export of Albania was chrome and that it was mostly mountainous. And I've always been able to find it on the map because I know where the Adriatic Sea is and I know it borders on the Adriatic. So anyway, yeah, in terms of triggers, every time they said Albania in this, it's like, do you ever see the, I guess it was South Park where the, what is it, Cartman? Here's Sail Away. Yeah. And he has to sing the whole song. Sail away, sail away 100% of the yes. time when I hear Albania, this goes through my head and I have to do the whole song. Albania, Albania, you border on the Adriatic. So trying to watch a horror movie with that running through your head is virtually impossible. But uh, yeah, just thought I'd throw that out there. So let's quickly run down the list of the companies that were involved with this. because It's quite a number of them. It really feels like they just needed lots of funding and backing to make this happen and hit up many different people to do it. So this is a Shudder exclusive. Shudder, of course, putting out other fine films such as the Har Noir, A History of Black Horror, 
Party Hard, Die Young, and Belzebuth. This also brought in RLJE Films, which did The Color Out of Space, Mandy, and Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich. Uh, we have Fangoria, which also did the last horror movie, Puppet Master, Lilith Reich. Uh, Media Finance Company, which was involved with Satanic Panic and Rabid. And, of course, we have Full Moon, baby! Brought us uh, <laughs> beauties in the past, such as Demonic Toys, Subspecies, and the whole Puppet Master series. Charles and Albert Band. All right, so yeah, let's get into the meat of the movie. Do we have to? Yes! We're doing this, damn it! <laughs> we start with a variation on the opening of the original movie. So the original Castle Freak opens with a woman who we find out is the mother of the titular freak. Same thing here. Only in this case, the mother is significantly younger than she was in the original film. Yeah, that's a problem. Quite a bit more naked, too. The character's name is Lavinia, and she's played by the actress you'll probably remember. Her name, uh, and apologies for pronunciation, is Kika Magohes. From Eyes of My Mother! Yep. So good. Fucked up. That movie messed me up, but it's a good movie. <laughs> so yeah, we open with a shot of the mother. So she has this little prayer nook set up with the crucifix, little altar with candles and whatnot. Get used to the set. We're going to see it several times for the movie's over. Yeah, a table with a Bible, a cross, and a whip. You know, the three food groups. <laughs> well, speaking of, she's talking about how she's going to go try and save the soul of this being who we hear crying in the background. But like the original Castle Freak, she prepares dinner for the freak. And this freak's got it way worse. The original Castle Freak, they had dry salami. They got artisanal bread. It was old as shit, but it was artisanal. And it wasn't much, but it was good. Yeah. And this one is just like awful. Ugh. Here are some leftovers. She goes down into the bowels of this archaic castle from the title. And just like the original, there is a freak who's shackled to the wall. We can't see anything except the freak's hands, which are withered and with nails that almost look like talons they're so long and reaching out she tosses the freak the plate and instantly starts beating this person with a cat of nine tails that is fucking massive and yep. apparently has a slashing bonus based on stuff that happens later in the movie yep <laughs> kind of look like a squid too yes like this one aerial shot i paused on him was like is that a, like a squid thing it, it, it's not but it really kind of looks like that from above it is enormous so at this point, we're kind of beat for beat the original Castle Freak, but then she goes back upstairs, and now we get a bit of another Stuart Gordon film, which is Pit in the Pendulum, because she then prostrates herself in front of this altar, strips naked, and begins self-flagellation, just like Torquemada in Pit in the Pendulum. This is when the movie tells you that there's not going to be any subtlety. This is going to be very right up front with everything. Yep. And speaking of, and we also get a very bizarre edit here, because so she is doing self-flagellation, then we get a jump edit, to somebody walking in, it's suddenly nighttime. Yeah. The camera tracks down. We see someone enter in to the freak's chamber, let the freak out. We don't see this person. We just see them silhouetted in the doorway, letting the freak out. Cuts back to the praying chamber, and we get a shot of Lavinia, who is now dead and has been dead for a little bit because she's already you know, started to maggots rotten places. Yeah, this really confused me. <laughs> There's a bit of a time jump. The editing of this opening is really weird. The editing's quirky in a lot of spots, but this opening bit's kind of weird. It's choppy, but it's clear to me that she had died some time had passed, and then this person shows up and is like, oh, okay, letting you out. Freak comes into the altar, touches Lavinia's dead body, and then starts smashing it. And the camera does this rack focus thing on Jesus as the freak is pounding this dead body where all of a sudden the crucifix comes into focus. And then the freak stands up, and pulls this enormous crucifix off the wall. And anyone who's seen the uncut version of the Devils, anytime someone pulls a crucifix off the wall, you go, uh-oh. But this doesn't <laughs> go that way. But the freak smashes it. I, I thought the sort of simultaneous mourning and violence 
against Lavinia was very well done. That was very invocative of this abusive relationship from a loved one. It's like, I'm mourning you because you're my mother and you've passed, but at the same time, God damn you for all the shit you've done to me. <laughs> yeah. The follow-up to this, the opening, I actually thought was quite fun because we yes. get it cuts to an exterior shot of the castle. And now we see in addition to the Jalo influence, and this itself might be somewhat of a Jalo influence, but it's a decidedly a hammer horror homage. Yes. Because we get the old timey credit smash just on this exterior shot of the castle. Very 70s style. Yes. Yeah. It's it's this very old timey credits bit where and it lists produced by, you know, so and so and so and so it lists the production companies. And if it ended there, it would be like, oh, that was fun. But but it doesn't. Because then <laughs> after we get the cards, now we get the nod to the original short story of yes. H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider. So both the original Castle Freak had a nod to this, which is this being who's kept in the bowels of this building coming up and seeing itself in the mirror for the first time. And we get that here. The Freak is coming up the stairs. Everything's dimly lit, but the Freak sees its reflection in the mirror. It's horrified for a second and then smashes the mirror. And then all of a sudden we get this shot of these slow motion glass shards just flying across camera. And that's where we have our one last credit over it, which is a film by Tate Steinsiek. Doesn't say it opening. He was like, no, no, no. I want my credit to go over the arty slow-mo shot of the glass moving. So it's kind of weird having that one credit later from everything else. Although I'm guessing Jake thought it was aft because glass will cut you much like the movie does. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I was just thinking about the craft at that point. Like, I hated this shot in the craft. I don't like it anymore here. Yeah, it's just kind of incongruous with everything we've seen up till then. Again, it's like, just put the film by thing at the end of the Hammer-esque intro. Now, there is a bit of visual continuity here, because as the freak smashes this mirror, it's a cut to Massachusetts to a shot of a stone walkway with shards of glass lying there, and a character who we'll soon find out is named Rebecca, played by Claire Catherine. She's from the Preppy Connection. I think it's the only other thing she's done. Yeah, it's important to note here real quick that almost everyone who worked in this film, it's like their second or third film. <laughs> There's a whole lot of newbies for this. A lot of fresh blood. You know, do you want a shot? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, very short IMDb profiles for the most part. And Rebecca picks up this shard of broken glass off the ground to check her makeup before going into this club. And it, again, the visual continuity is interesting, but it was like, who picks up fucking broken glass <laughs> to check your makeup? This building was odd to me. Like the best way I can just, in my head, I could think to describe it was it's like a post-apocalyptic Louvre. <laughs> What it actually is, is the Pyramid of Tirana. So this scene is actually, this is filmed in Albania and it's filmed in the capital city of Tirana. So I've got some information about this because I was interesting because it's, like you said, it's a really kind of fascinating looking building and it looks gutted in the film. Yeah. Yet it's also clearly something. They didn't make it for the movie. Right. Right. So what it is, and I'm going to read you a little bit. This is from the Atlas Obscura. The out-of-place pyramid was built as a museum in honor of Enver Hoxha, a former Albanian leader who furthered the ideals of Stalinism for decades after the Russian dictator died. Designed by Hoxha's daughter and son-in-law to keep the leader's legacy alive, earning it the informal name, the Enver Hoxha Mausoleum, the museum retained its original purpose until 1991. As national attitudes begin to change, which is a really nice way of saying that this was, you know, revolution and shit. 
<laughs> As national attitudes began to change, the space was converted to a convention center in the first shift in purpose of what would eventually lead to its downfall. As the central purpose of the marble tile-covered structure shifted from museum to convention center to military staging area to television station, the revolving ownership led to massive neglect. Combined with the unpopular communist legacy associated with its construction, the building began being looted for materials and covered in graffiti, <laughs> leading to its current state of dilapidation. While the Pyramid of Tirana is not completely disused, there's still an independent Albanian broadcast company operating there. The government is trying to vote the site into demolition. However, the vote is being contested by locals who would like to see the piece of their heritage, however dark, preserved. So what you're telling me is this is the Christopher Columbus statue of Albania. Got it. <laughs> I, I was just fascinated that this Massachusetts, you know, sleaze punk party was set in this fucking monument to communist Albania <laughs> that's grown dilapidated because people hate it. I, I was absolutely fascinated. It took me a while to figure out what it was because clearly it was something and yeah. I was determined to figure out what the hell it was. And IMDb's shooting location stuff was just like, yeah, this is Albania. It's like, well, thank you, IMDb. Not fucking helpful. <laughs> and I eventually had to go through the director's Instagram and some of the actors' Instagrams and roll back to when they were shooting this to find like location shots and stuff where they were naming what the things were or where they were. And, and I've got some more information from that. Oh, fuck. Because this is what I spent time on rather than thinking about the movie. <laughs> I'm glad you found a defense mechanism. But anyway, I, I was really kind of actually fascinated by that because here's this remake and these, you know, this sleazy sort of punk party set just in this incredibly historical but incredibly dilapidated monument. I mean, it's cool. It was a good choice in retrospect. I thought, well, it was a good choice. And in, in first, I thought it was an interesting set. So and I really liked their pants in the scene. <laughs> and that also answers the question I had about the graffiti, because there is definitive graffiti on one wall. So I guess they set that motif up. Not just thinking of it on, but to complement the actual motif of the, the actual graffiti that's back there. Yeah, I paused it a couple of times to try and figure out if they had done the graffiti in there. And I, I'm not, I'm still not sure. In the one shot, they definitely did add, at least add some. So the, the graffiti bits I was able to pick out are fuck the Yankees, <laughs> go Sox, <laughs> because it's set in Massachusetts. Yep. There's the number 34. There's a phrase behind the bag. But the main one is there's a spray painting that says ill willed which is the name of Tate Steinzeck's makeup studio. Ah, oh, nice. that makes sense. And the other thing worth noting about this opening sequence as Rebecca's going into this club is the club has this very distinctive blue, red, violet lighting. It's very vibrant. We talked earlier, it's kind of gives it this very giallo feel. And that color motif will recur throughout the film. But yep. very specifically, it comes in at the ending. So very much. much bookends the film. So we're introduced to Rebecca as she heads up to her boyfriend, John. Played by Jake Horowitz. He's from, uh, from what I hear, the Vast of Night. He's also from Julie Taymor's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. He played Lysander. Nice. Been in my queue for ages. Yeah. Also in that was Alex Shimizu, who played an angry elemental, and also played a Japanese teen catfishing the Dean in the season six episode of Community. <laughs> yeah, you better clap. That shit took forever to find. Good job. <laughs> So there's our community connection is Jake Horowitz. I really was hoping it would be Vast tonight because that movie is cool. So we're introduced to John, played by Jake Horowitz, who was talking to Shelley, played by Emily Sweet. Who I know from uh, Fear Farm. That's it. Should I know Fear Farm? No, you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you should not know Fear Farm. <laughs> it sounds like something I should know, but I don't know Fear Farm. Nope. 
You just said that with a distinct amount of confidence. Oh, yeah, she was in Fear Farm like it was you know, Star Trek. <laughs> it's a true statement. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> but yeah, Rebecca comes up and like pretty much immediately tells Shelly to just piss off. And she does. Shelly walks away. And John's like, you love it when I make you jealous. And she's like, I guess that's why I find you with women behind my back all the time, isn't it? Right off the back, you learn that John is just a piece of shit. John is such a lovely fucking boyfriend. <laughs> this guy deserves anything and everything he gets in this film, all right? It's rather spectacular how overt they get with some of that with him. Because normally it's kind of like a slow build on something. This film has just a nope. big douchebaggery right up front. This guy was like, shit, she's blind. This fucking gaslighting is going to be way easier. (laughs) (laughs) And some of it's so pointless. This feels red. Nah, it's blue. What? Fuck you. (laughs) Oh, that scene. Yeah, we're getting there. Before then, we meet the rest of the crew. We meet Larry, who's played by Omar Sharif Brunson Jr. Are we sure that's Larry? That's Larry, yes. Are we sure? Yes. Okay, I ask because there's two of their friends that have no names Per the credits. <laughs> yes, Larry is Omar Sharif Brunson Jr. And right. Chuck is Alicia Pratt. Then there's the professor. That one we know. Okay. How did you verify their names? Because watching the film, I couldn't. <laughs> end credits. Okay. Okay. I got the characters' names from the end credits. And then based on their IMDb photos, I matched up the characters. Yeah, their names are not, and the characters' names are not in IMDb. I'd never run across that before. A lot of the IMDb for this is incomplete. So like the production designer and stuff, like I had to get them from the end credits just because it's so new. But let's be clear here. There's no reason why you should have to cross-reference materials of a film to learn one of the characters' names, okay? Because I noticed in IMDb that they didn't have names there. And I didn't look at the credits at the end of the film, but I watched the movie listening and waiting for it. And at no point in the damn film do they actually <laughs> determine who is who. And I'm like, I understand you, IMDb. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> if IMDb had like an edit history like Wikipedia, you might see that like Omar Sharif Brunson Jr. and Alicia Pratt tried to delete this movie from their IMDb. <laughs> and it wouldn't let him delete it entirely. It's like, well, let me delete the character's name. So I'll do that much. Well, realistically, would it have changed your opinion on them in any fashion if they had names? They bring almost nothing to the plot. names are inconsequential for characters who are so nuanced and developed. (laughs) I knew the one dude from True Detective. I thought that was fun. (laughs) Yeah, he was in True Detective Season 3. I haven't seen it yet. He's also in Zombactor Center City Contagion, which I don't know, but... I knew him from True Detective. (laughs) (laughs) The other dude is in Loose, which I have seen. But the, the main character we're introduced to here is the professor. Yes. Played by Chris Gullist. From Give Me Liberty. I like him in this. Oh boy, this character. <laughs> I like him. I, no, oh, no. He's a little over the I'm top, but did. I like that. <laughs> oh, no. Saying you like him is like saying you like the kidnapped pupil. I have not watched that oh yet. Oh my God. I very much liked <laughs> the story. I'm not entirely sure what you're trying to say right now, Jake. <laughs> You should watch Apt Pupil, you'll figure it out. <laughs> but let me just say, Eric's reaction to my saying that was, my God. So, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. but yeah, the professor, as you would guess from his name, is kind of the stereotypical super nerdy character. He's complete with horn rim glasses. And when we're introduced to the character, he's living up to his professor moniker by talking about alternate universe theories. Yep. Parallel worlds. This transitions then into... <laughs> the character of chuck who then says yeah let's talk about the lizard people my note on this is oh shit david icky lizard people bullshit (laughs) 
Alien shape-shifting lizard people. Or V. Maybe they're just V fans. I, I have to admit, I got a little excited for half a second. Because I'm like, oh, they're going to sneak in uh, Lovecraftian serpent people. Oh, that's fun. I was about I, to ask if it was and a then no. something. I then no. <laughs> they go right into the conspiracy wingnut territory. I'm like, oh, never mind. Backing out. Yeah, I mean, they, they pretty much dead-on described the David Icky stuff. Yep. They should have gone with Lovecraft stuff. Let's talk about the many angled lizards. See, that would have been so much cooler in my mind. It's like, take the existing lizard man, like conspiracy theories and whatnot, but then have them warped by the quote unquote reality of serpent people in a Lovecraftian world. That could be fun. You could do something neat with that. Yeah. The problem is, is a lot of the Lovecraft stuff in this feels kind of like, like stuff in Ready Player One to a degree where they're just saying it uh, and not necessarily doing anything with it. That, that is true with the exception of the Dunwich Horror. Right. The Dunwich Horror is a critical part of this entire movie. But you're right. They name drop Miskatonic. They name drop Massachusetts and, and, and a couple other small things. Yeah. And it just, again, I like that they delved into it, but some of it just felt a little too, you know, checkbox, like listing things off. Fair. I just want to hear more about the lizard agenda. That's <laughs> Chuck has this whole thing where he's going off about easy lizard people. They look just like us. They become politicians and movie stars to push their lizard agenda. He just wanted to keep going. Larry said, the fuck are you talking about, Chuck? And Professor, don't mind him. I lent him some Neil Adams comics. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about his expanding Earth theory next. <laughs> but speaking of Dunwich, which Nick just mentioned. So at this point, all the characters are getting trashed. And then John and Rebecca go to leave. John is clearly heavily inebriated, but insists, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. He is so blindingly stupid drunk, and it's ironic I describe it that way, because (laughs) because of what's about to happen. happen. So they pass a road sign which says I-95 North, Dunwich, Massachusetts, 34 miles. So there's our Dunwich nod. I was was still pretty excited at this. Like, that made me excited watching this. I was like, oh shit, Dunwich, that's awesome. Yeah. It was a while before I turned on this movie. I'll just throw that out. <laughs> I was about to say, was it? did the movie turn into a car wreck when we hit the literal car wreck next? <laughs> no, but I say this this car wreck is pretty fucking underwhelming. Yeah. No, but it is an improvement on the original. This is the one yes, thing that's I would true. say this movie improves on the original movie. The car accident is better. Yes. It's still shitty. The original <laughs> is rough because this one, so they're driving, they see a pair of headlights, and then it cuts to a shot of this car kind of rolling down a hill when it kind of comes to a sudden jerky stop. In the original movie, it basically looks like Jeffrey Combs is slowly pulling over onto the shoulder, and then suddenly his son is somehow catapulted out of the car. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that bad. The car flips, but flips really slowly. It's one of the rare cases where maybe you should have sped that up or something. It got to me a little bit in this because, I mean, we're coming off watching Phantasm, and like Don Coscarelli did that one cool-ass like triple car flip with a fucking hearse for like eight (laughs) dollars you know with a hearse you know and then you get this is like we're gonna drive down a hill that's it that's it and it's like uh, it doesn't have to be super spectacular but make it look like an accident where somebody would actually get hurt i don't i'm not even convinced the fucking airbags would deploy in what they filmed i'm not convinced people were (laughs) in the car honestly i think they just didn't invest in a stunt crew I don't think there were any stunt crew. Exactly. There was no stunt cruisers like just throw it over the damn side and then you get what you get. You know, if you don't have someone putting their foot on that damn pedal and directing the thing and hitting the right ramps and whatnot, you're going to get a eh, effect with cars. Yeah. And they try and edit around it by doing this editing thing where they just insert just shots of black as they cut to different angles. They do it as the car is starting to veer off the road to give it this kind of hallucinatory feel. And then it also potentially parallels the character's blindness because 
just like the original movie. As a result of this car accident, the character of Rebecca is now blinded. I really liked that they aged up Rebecca. I was glad that we were no longer telling a, a strangely kind of sexual story around a, you know, minor. I was glad we got away from that. Yes. <laughs> the, the, taking that out of the movie was a good change. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's two good changes. I was also glad they didn't have a close-up of glass in her eye. I didn't yeah, like that uh, in the first one. Yeah, uh, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and similar to the film, now we get our transition to characters pulling up to the castle. So we flash forward some months after the accident. Rebecca is now wearing contacts on her pupils to show that she's now blind. She has some scarring on her forehead and some scarring on her right temple. The driver of the vehicle now establishes our location by saying, quite bluntly, it's your first time in Albania. <laughs> Albania. <laughs> Albania, you border on the Adriatic. I'm telling you, man. Okay, so he says Albania. You sing that, and every time my head is just like, Anvilania. <laughs> <laughs> it's a series of dominoes we need to stop. <laughs> or really lean into. Because I know you two can sing that song, and I just sang to that same tune. So... Did either of you guys look up where this was actually shot? Yes, it was shot in Girocaster Castle. I read very little about the background of it. I was mostly struck by the optics of it. Because when you first see the exterior of this place, they really should have retitled this movie from Castle Freak to Fortress Freak. Which, <laughs> there is not much difference, obviously, between Castle and Fortress. But when you see the optics of this castle... It's enormous, <laughs> and it looks like Lavinia, the mother character, had specifically taken up residence there in case the village decided to try and lay siege to it. <laughs> it's, it's massive. So I've, I've got a little bit on it. Like we said, it's called Girocaster Castle, and it's a fortress in Girocaster, Albania, built during the Ottoman rule, and it was historically known as, and boy, am I going to butcher some names here, so I apologize to whomever knows how to pronounce these things. Urgiri, while local Greeks referred to it as Argiocastro, a name that also applied to the castle. So that's the town. It's 336 meters tall. The citadel has existed in various forms since the 12th century. Extensive renovations and a westward addition was added by Ali Pasha of Tepelani after 1812. And this is my favorite bit. The government of King Zog expanded the castle prison in 1932. I didn't know much about Albania's history, and I spent a lot reading about it because there's a dude named King Zog, and I needed to know more <laughs> about King Zog. But also, the, the town itself, which you, you see in a few later scenes, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yeah. It's a rare example of a well-preserved Ottoman town built by farmers of large estates. The city is overlooked by Girocaster Forest, and there's a stage you see a couple of times in this. It's where like a lot of the cult shenanigans happen in the finale which is actually a stage built for the National Folklore Festival held every five years. Huh. Like, that's what that stage is, is specifically for National Folklore Festival. And I, I thought that was really cool. And then they defiled it. <laughs> nope. That was good repurposing of an existing set. It, it worked pretty well for the, the way they used it. It was pretty cool. Yeah. It's a neat, like, there's a couple of aerial shots and, you know, drone shots of the area around, which were absolutely my favorite part of the film. Nice. Because <laughs> it's a really beautiful area and it's a neat looking fortress. There's a bunch of, like, clock towers in it. And I don't know about the interiors. If they were all in it, that I couldn't find out. I think somewhere, I, I think the, the Great Hall set 
that they did was probably elsewhere or just greatly dressed up. But yeah, because there's actually a museum in the building. It was I just thought it was cool and it's a neat set. And I think that really worked well for the film. Yeah, this place is massive. It's really cool looking. And in the film, in, whereas in real life, it's called Girocaster Castle. In the film, it is called Watley Castle, which is, I'm sure folk probably know, is a Lovecraft homage. Mm-hmm. I got excited when he said that. Absolutely. Oh, this is Watley. You're a Watley. She's like, oh, no, I'm a Riley. And she's like, no, you're a Watley. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> I got real excited, man. <laughs> probably why this movie pissed me off so much is because it got me going early on with a lot of the connections. Watley is, again, being most connected to the Dunwich Horror. Yeah, all this is relayed by a character named Marku, played by Genty Kame. Yeah, he's from uh, No Limit and uh, Love Dashuri. And he introduces and says, oh, welcome, Miss Watley, to Rebecca. And she's like, oh, my name's not Watley. My name is Riley. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll try and remember. Well, welcome to Watley Castle. You will note that we have overlit every conceivable surface. <laughs> <laughs> I like he says, welcome to Watley Castle. And she's like, what? because <laughs> of course you know the douchebag boyfriend's just kind of like it's old and i'm in shock she's like oh so it's awful <laughs> this guy is like the worst he is so i hate him at every point of this movie <laughs> i thought he was he's somehow less skeevy than jeffrey combs was in the original but far worse as a person like he was more insidious overall like he felt i don't want to say evil he didn't feel evil he felt like a much worse human being, but he didn't feel as, I don't know, Jeffrey Combs just felt very skeevy in the original. Curious to see if the microphone picks up Nick's eyebrow raise. It's that jarring that you can hear the flesh and hair moving. <laughs> huh. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, Jeffrey Combs played it to not be like the best human being ever. He came across very much like like he's pathetic and an alcoholic and he's very selfish. Yeah, skeevy. I, I definitely feel John in this one is significantly more skeevy personally. I, he just, he didn't feel skeevy. He felt like he was just, he was more, what it, my note specifically says, Jake Horowitz is less skeevy than Combs, but far more insidious. Eh. Like Jeffrey Combs felt like a dude who would absolutely, you know, go pick up a hooker and get drunk in town and, and cheat on his wife and whatever. Whereas Horowitz felt like he's the kind of guy that would, you know, frame his friends for murder that was the vibe i got i was mostly thrown off by the portrait of the late mr watley which mark who draws our attention to it's so creepy <laughs> was it him being a ddp yoga enthusiast because he's doing the reverse diamond cutter with his hands all the time? He's really into ddp yoga every picture of him is just this ominous oh you know kind of just like bearing down on you like my soul is still here judging you as you you know as you enter my castle i just looked at it and i think i said out loud well mostly vigo <laughs> <laughs> well, mostly Watley. <laughs> also, Marco is a hell of a close talker. It was uncomfortable. Yes. Oh my god! <laughs> he's. It looked at any point he's just gonna bite their face as a hello. Like especially the scene in a minute where he walks out with the boyfriend, yes, takes his belt yes. off. Like that dude is an inch from his face, taking off his belt. Man, that's not a situation that ends the way that that was uh, <laughs> eye contact the whole time. It was uncomfortable. So we've talked about the art with the picture of the grandfather. But it is worth noting that all of the statues in this place are amazing because most of them are just busts <laughs> of people, but they all have these tentacle beards. Every single yes. one of them has like this. If you're not looking closely, it almost looks like it's just a textured pillar they're standing on. But no, 
All of them have literal Cthulhu tentacle beards dangling from their faces. There was one that looked like a straight up Cthulhu statue that falls. There on was it. one. Yeah, it was a straight up Cthulhu statue. When they first come into the castle, it's shot like through a doorway yes. as they come through. And you can see they're basically Cthulhu doorstops. Yep. Immediately in that first threshold. <laughs> yeah, they get a bit of a tour at the place. Marku gives them exposition, says, oh, yeah, your late mother was a recluse here. Rebecca is taken aback by this. She says, you know, I always thought my mother gave me away because she was poor. And now she's living in the goddamn castle. John steps out with Marku. Just ask him a couple Leaving questions. a blind woman alone in an unfamiliar place why <laughs> a place which as we'll find out is quite hazardous oh my god <laughs> with precariously placed statues and broken glass all over the goddamn place <sighs> but in the meantime john's got to ask marku some side questions specifically he's like you know asking do you know what killed the old woman he's, i believe it was called slow flagellation john does not reply she farted to death not flagellation dipshit flagellation <laughs> <laughs> No, instead, Marku demonstrates, as Jake just mentioned, like, make keep an eye contact with John, pulling his belt off and then flicking over his shoulders to simulate your self-flagellation. Did you ever see uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Oh, yeah. You know the, the male prostitute that's a recurring character? <laughs> and the scene in one of the seasons where there's a, a pyramid scheme thing and the guy works there and what's his face has to do a uh, neck massage. He's pretending to be him. He has to do a neck massage. And the guy goes, where's my eye contact? that's what i kept thinking of during this entire scene it's like this is so why would you do this and you know like a dude takes off his belt while staring deeply into your soul you you got a choice you're about to have to make is all i'm saying so maybe answer some questions about yourself john also is taking this opportunity to talk to him about selling the castle he is very eager to get rid of it and just get the money and run they're, they're interested in first bidders no real negotiations no bid wars just First person shows up wants to buy this place, do it. Yes. And he's a little concerned about the history of the place and the suicide of uh, Lavinia potentially affecting the sale. And Marco's like, nah, the kind of people who buy castles have eccentric tastes. It's like, it's just, it, you, you can tell this is the kind <laughs> of guy who's like, hey, if you like it, if you're into it, I've already been there. <laughs> and then John tells him, you know, John has the line where he says, you know, well, you take Castle Grayskull off our hands, you get a healthy commission. He's disappointed. Marco did not respond. Oh, no, sir. No, he's no Castle Grayskull. He's more Snake Mountain playset. <laughs> or uh, or Dark Fright Zone, perhaps? You know, the one with the hand puppet? <laughs> John heads inside and is talking to Rebecca and saying, you know, hey, good news. Our friends are coming to visit. I don't know how John thinks he's getting a red scent out of this castle sale. He's absolutely plotting her murder at this point. Oh, yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But before murdering her, he tries pressuring her into sex. So lets her know that their friends are coming. And she says, you know, oh, that's going to remind me of, you know, my old life, basically. And I can't go back to that. It almost killed both of us. And he's like, oh, no, come on, honey. We need our friends around. Help us move in. And begins pressuring her into sex and has the line, man, I wish you could forgive me. He's like, that's a very natural line delivery right there. Uh, he's such a piece of shit. Wasn't that ADR, too? Yes. He's so awful. It's, yeah. it's rough. This is where the like the movie started to lose me a bit because it's like everything just gets very uncomfortable and then, you know, eventually bad. But it really starts to get uncomfortable at this point. Yeah, this is where a recurring plot point comes up of Rebecca's visions because Rebecca and John both go to sleep and she begins to have this vision. And it's a vision of her mother. First, she's self-flagellating and then there's the altar. Yeah, and this is she has cryptic images of her mother's death. But in each case, when Rebecca has a vision of her mother or any time the visions hit her, 
it's in this semi-orgasmic reaction that she has, which is uncomfortable just the way they put it together, particularly where it goes at the end. But it's also uncomfortable because they put it in direct juxtaposition with her mom. Yeah. Particularly what the second vision is, which we'll get to in a little bit. I mean, it's poorly done, but I get the impression that she is channeling the emotions of her mother in these very kind of sexual situations not having a sexual response to seeing them per se yeah no it's a connection thing but yeah but it's 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 poorly done man nobody wants to channel their mom having an orgasm (laughs) nobody period that is a zero percent of the population that wants that correction there is one because it's the freak because we'll just talk about the second vision since we brought it up the second vision rebecca has is her mom masturbating with the whip as the freak watches so it's not just rebecca that they're putting in sexual juxtaposition with their mother it's the freak as well who will get into the freak connection with rebecca here in a little bit but yeah that is not an isolated thing to quote the hobbit where there's a whip there's a way. There's a way. <laughs> I don't want to bust a nut today. <laughs> Good night, folks. Yep, that's it for us. I'm going to fap all day, all day, all day. <laughs> Where there's a whip. There's a way. <laughs> What? Good luck watching that Rankin Bass Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That one's Return of the King, actually. <laughs> All right, Nick, you got to sing us a song now. I've sung. Eric's sung. I'm, I'm You're sh- up. I'm sure I'll think of something along the way. <laughs> it is worth noting in the middle of this dream sequence, we do hear a man say, I will find your daughter. Yes. Sort of like some hint of things to come. There is an evil presence out there somewhere connected to them possibly after Rebecca. Yep. But first, breakfast. <laughs> Rebecca wakes up. John is frying bacon. We have this long droning push-in as he's frying bacon, where it's just doing like this slow push-in on the bacon frying where the music slowly builds. It's very strange, like aside from being like a really generic sort of tension-building moment, it's very odd. But then she sits down and has her morning coffee. Do you not like bacon? I like bacon. I like bacon. I don't like using bacon for suspense. Bacon, 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 bacon. Like, What's in the bag? <laughs> Young Sothoff! Like I don't have to like... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, now I want bacon. <laughs> but first Rebecca sits down to have her morning coffee. I really got hooked on her coffee mug in this. It's this black coffee mug and you can see the... She lifts it up and you can see the company on the bottom. And so I was looking up the company trying to find the mug. And then I got really hung up on the idea that the movie should end with her having her version of the Knives Out mug. Nice. Where it just says, my castle, my freak, my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we got a new thing we got to add to the store. Check T Public the day after this episode goes up. <laughs> it's interesting. So up to this point, you know, John's been keeping her in the dark about her mom's suicide. You know, keeping Marku quiet and not wanting to disturb her all he wants to do is get business done and get the hell out and she tells him this nightmare and it's subtle i noticed it and i think it was intentional but there's this clearly slight twinge to john where he's making the connection between her dream and the knowledge he has about her mother's suicide mm. and then he just quickly stomps it down and he's just like ah, you know, it's you know it's just the atmosphere you know don't worry about it quickly blows her off completely continuing his rampant campaign of gaslighting her yeah this guy is gonna be in the pantheon of terrible movie boyfriends with like 
Midsummer and yeah, and Paranormal Activity. Yep, yep, yep Paranormal yep. Activity. One of the worst boyfriends ever. <laughs> that I guess that's the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at this point, they do a quick tour of the house, which of looking at the great. Hall. Oh, he even drops a couple. This is my castles later on too. Yep. Oh yeah, he goes full possessive at the end. It's it's some impressive douchebaggery. So after going through, they find the Great Hall. More broken mirrors. Like, every mirror in this place has been smashed. Every mirror is broken. Yep. Which just goes to show that this thing has had full run of the entire estate. Anywhere they are at, you see a broken mirror, and it gives that dread of, yes, this thing can't be stopped. It will find you no matter where you're at. It has already been here. It'll be back. Yeah. They do this quick tour of the Great Hall. They find the prayer nook where her mother used to be. And find, you know, all the accoutrements. They find the cat of nine tails. The wine cellar. They find the wine cellar. Did you catch the name of the wine? We get the, the wine bottle later, but it's, he pulls one of the wine bottles out. And it's Casa Giorgio Orsino, 1926. Which is the name of the kid from the original, if I remember correctly. Is the freak, yes. Yep. <laughs> is the original castle freak, was Giorgio Orsino. And then he lies to her about the presence of wine. Yeah. Well, it's clear that he is going out of his way to be sober with her as a part of kind of atoning for his actions. But the fact that he completely lies about the cellar just goes to show you that this dickbag had zero intention of sticking to that. He saw the wine cellar was like, I'm going to enjoy that. God forbid she knows about it and it halts that. So I'm just going to keep my shit quiet for now. Awful. Yeah, he's it, just awful. It just seemed weird to me. Cause like, you know, he's like, you know, he kind of looks at the wine. He's like, oh, this is old. Like your first thought there should be to sell that shit, not drink it. Everything he tells her, has the consistent thread in it of what answer will make my life easier. That's all he cares about. Well, I understand that. I'm just, he's clearly interested in drinking it. I'm just saying he should have been more interested in selling it. Yeah. So now, then they find her mother's bedroom. Again, the window is smashed. And he opens the wardrobe and immediately recoils and says, Oh, fucking flies. Jesus. No flies. Yeah, there's no flies in this. <laughs> there are no flies in the, It's invisible flies, the worst kind. Yeah, but we quickly noticed that the reason why there are flies and also a disturbing smell is because deep within that closet is the freak waiting and listening and watching, which they don't notice. Yeah, you think if his nose was that fucking sensitive, he'd have known something else later. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> oh, yeah, we will. No, in his defense, he was blotto drunk at that point. And on multiple drugs. We'll get to that scene when we get to it. <laughs> then we can have our fight. She takes one of the dresses out, kind of holds it, just thinking of her mother being sad. Yeah, which is one of those things that was like, this should be touching, but it, it really falls flat the way it's performed. But this robe is important for the sequence which is coming up. So we get another dream sequence first. This is where we get Rebecca dreaming of her mother, Lavinia, masturbating. As the freak watches on in both flashback and the freak is also every time Rebecca is having a vision in her sleep, there's images that the freak is kind of creeping up on her bed, potentially. Yep. Where it looks like it's approaching her from the foot of the bed. But every time Rebecca wakes up and the freak's not there. But yeah, this is not only is it a vision of Lavinia masturbating, but after it goes on for about 10 seconds, there is a bass groove that kicks in. <laughs> on the soundtrack i laugh so fucking hard of do 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 like wow we're just putting it on front street huh <laughs> well that's that's clearly the moment she was starting to hit her groove you know <laughs> after this we get the <laughs> the rhythm's gonna get her is what you're saying Nick. <laughs> so after this we get the fireplace sequence 
And this is where the lighting really started to bug me because this is where my note is, don't do neon colors if everything is overlit. I don't care if there's a fireplace in the scene. Because they have, the, again, these very Jalo-esque neon lighting on bits, but everything else is like fucking fluorescent. It drives me nuts how they overlight things in this fucking movie. Aside from how they frame it. But, the, oh. but this is where we get, so Rebecca is sitting with John and just talking about odds and ends. And, and she confronts John and says, what color is my mother's robe? Because in my dream, it was red. Oh, babe, it's blue. And she's, well, it feels red to me. It's Megalol and him gaslighting her in front of a literal fireplace. <laughs> and it's so fucking petty. <laughs> Everything. It, oh, I hate this man so much. All he's thinking about the money and getting out of there, period. And he's just looking to get her to just forget about the past so he can move on with their sex life. You know, he again says he loves her and he's sorry. And apparently this was the enough time of him saying it where she basically starts starts kissing him and they start getting intimate. And while they're doing that, the thing watches and they all come together. <laughs> come together. It's incredibly disturbing. Right now. <laughs> There is no way they didn't hear the freak's orgasm in this movie. It's a Belial scream. But I love the way it kind of peters out. And then it walks off. It's got to get some orange juice. After sex, we get next morning, another breakfast sequence. Now Rebecca's making eggs herself. And, you know, I've got to learn to do stuff for myself at this point. So she's fixing breakfast. Yeah, she's having a high moment. She seems very renewed, very ready to move forward, get this place sold and move on with her lives. And, you know, everything's going to be good. You know, she's positive. She's in a very happy place. If you think about kind of the timeline of this movie, how soon after her having her accident do you think she got the news about the castle? It had to be while she was in the hospital, right? Had to be. Uh, because there's no way this dude was staying with her once she was blind if there wasn't a specific reason <laughs> for it. Sure there is. I think he, on some level, feels bad about it. Not enough to do anything overly against his will, but, you know, he feels a little bad about it. I think much like the boyfriend in Midsummer, he felt like he had a certain specific time frame he had to deal with this before he could bail. And then in that, she became the heritor of a castle. I think he is conscious enough of his relationship with other people that he wouldn't want everyone looking down on him. He would at least wait the socially acceptable amount of time because he's not going to burn all of his bridges just because of an inconvenience. Given the pack of friends that shows up, I'm not entirely sure that that holds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the nameless crew. Yeah, so at this point, John heads downstairs to the wine cellar after breakfast. This is where he looks at the wine bottle. So Rebecca is moving about the Great Hall, blunders into an enormous Cthulhu statue, which cuts her. She falls to the ground and it topples over. It's going to kill her. On a trajectory to crush her when the freak is now in the room and basically bats it out of the way where it smashes adjacent to her on the Saves floor. her life. Intentionally saves her life. And is lit up like a mummy. <laughs> yes. So now we get what we, we were talking about earlier in terms of their confidence in the makeup. So this is our first like really good look at the freak makeup. And it's wrapped up in some gauze like in kind of mummy-esque. But we get a really good look at the makeup and it is in bright ass fluorescent ass daylight lighting. Yep. So it's like we're confident in our makeup and, and it does look good. I, like I don't it. think it looks better than the original. 
but it is interesting they kept the same basic design concept mm-hmm. like it's the basic design of the freak is essentially the same as the original it's emaciated it's with got... one enormous anatomical difference we'll get to <laughs> <laughs> that'll come later that's later but yeah, you know, it's got the rags for clothing. It's emaciated. It's got clear scarring up across it. It still has that massive gash in the mouth, so the mouth never fully closed. It's good. I liked it. And they do a fun cut here, I like, where the thing is clearly kind of still worried about her and looking at her. And the camera pans to the left as John comes in to see what the hell's going on. And when it pans back to the right, it's gone. You know, it's like one cut, poof. It's quick. It knows its way in and out. It's smart. It's still kind of bestial, but it knows how to make a quick exit. I laugh so fucking hard at that scene. <laughs> Just how quick the pan is, because it's like zip, zip. And so it's like, unless that freak is on the fucking ceiling, ninja style. <laughs> it's it's not that bad, but it did make me laugh. It is so fast, the pan that the camera does there. What a good song title that would be, Freaks on the Ceiling. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> no, instead we get another band name coming up, which is now we get the reference to Big Albanian Squirrels. When uh, Rebecca's talking about, you know, oh, there was something in the room with me. And John's like, oh, it's squirrels. You know, they have big Albanian squirrels here. It's the dumbest throw. Oh, my God. He's basically doing everything short of just telling her to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I don't care. I hate him so much. You know, Rebecca's like, you know, maybe I want to get out of here. He convinces her to stay because the, their friends are still coming. At this point, John <laughs> then dips to the side to call Marku. He's officially starting to break down. He's like, okay, you know, I, I did my best. I need a little extra. Yeah, calls Marku and says, I'm, I'm in need of some pharmaceuticals, if you know what I mean. Marku says, I got just the guy for you. And boy, is it just the guy. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor. Yes, the the most enthusiastic dealer I've seen in a while. Say, hey, man, I got it all, man. <laughs> what you need? Doctor is played by Clodian Hoxa from Pit Stop Mafia and Balkan Blood. And while he has a vast cornucopia of uh, drugs to offer, all John wants is some downers. At which point, the doctor gets so goddamn dark. He's just like, you want some H? How about sex? Get you anything you want. It's like, the guy is just... We live on edge. I'm like, whoo! I felt Iggy thinking about him, let alone imagining John two feet away from him. I'm like, oh, that's a guy's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I got some H. We live on edge. And then John's like, I don't want any H. And the dealer's like, well, I want some H. I'm going to shoot up right here. I like it. Like, John's like, maybe you should shoot up somewhere else. The guy pulls the damn gun. He's like, you know what? Never mind. You go ahead and just shoot up right here. You have a nice night. This was my first just blatantly, what the fuck even is this scene moment in this film? It's just so, I mean, I don't even know what. And it doesn't get any better. It's, okay, so it is a little shoehorned in. Because they wanted another victim. That is kind of clear. That being said, I get the impression half of this character's existence is due to the actor. I could almost see him going like, I have a great idea and we're just going to try it. And he just kind of (laughs) went off and they were like, okay, yeah, we'll take that. (laughs) This film's Johnny Galecki death coming up. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I don't feel like anyone chose this character type. I feel like he just came in and was like, Woo! <laughs> I got something for you. Let's do it. Yeah, the doctor is high on life because, and just high, because as he shoots <laughs> up this heroin, the freak shows up, picks up the needle, stabs him with it, and then proceeds to pull out all the other needles and stab him in his eye stock and stab him in his chest. But the first one, he 
stabs him, presses the plunger, and the guy immediately throws up. And look, I don't know a lot about heroin, but I don't think that's how it works. Just saying. So, But the parallel to this is while John is talking with the doctor and getting the drugs, Rebecca hears these voices that lead her back to her mom's wardrobe. It sounds like her mother praying. Yeah, Yeah, she can't quite make it out. Leads her to the wardrobe where she finds a book hidden on the top shelf of the wardrobe that she pulls off. Is this enormous, potentially leather-bound book? We don't know what it is yet, but it looks like it's bound in flesh with the asshole on the front cover. Yeah, <laughs> we all instantly knew what that book was going to be, right? <laughs> yes. Like there was no, there's like, I wonder what that book is. You're like, oh, they found the Necronomicon. I mean, hey, it could have been the Libre Vanis. It's not the Necronomicon. We'll get to why. It's not. It's just this random leather bound book, and it gives us two bits of visual continuity. One is the asshole on the cover, which is visual <laughs> continuity to John's existence. But the other one is as Rebecca's flipping through it. She lands on a page which just says the word more and is a picture of a body which has been stabbed in places, daggers in the eyes and stuff. And the placement of the wounds mirrors where the freak has put all these needles in the doctor. It feels like his death is very intentional. The way she killed him matters. It's part of some ritual, some magic. We cut to Marku, who's outside putting up a sign that reads S-H-I-T-E-T. Which is Albanian for sale. Which Albanian for sale. If you drop the last letter, it's far more accurate as far as what's going on in this movie. Shitty. Shite. (laughs) Fucking shite. Also, Google Translate doesn't know it. So if you put that in and switch it to Albanian to English, it just says shit. No! (laughs) It translated for me. It said for sale. It just said shit for me when I did it. And then I I found out... Like, I I Googled it later. I'm like, that can't possibly be fucking right. And then found out what it actually meant. But yeah, Google Translate lied to me initially. (laughs) It is the shittiest sign, too. Like, it's 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 a piece of cardboard and like spray paint. I'm like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) In front of a castle. It's just (laughs) like that's this guy's. Oh, sell it. All right. I'll put up a sign. What? What? It feels like the kind of thing you'd find in a rundown trailer park, not not a fortress. <laughs> he was originally going to print up one of those flyers with the little tags at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> but now the friends show up just in time to see this guy putting a sign in front that says shit. So the, the posse of friends show up. John's like, oh, hey, come on in, guys. And, you know, they're looking about the place. They've brought drugs and alcohol, which are specifically drugs because there's already alcohol there, despite John insisting to Rebecca that, you know, no one was going to bring anything. And of course they did. They're all drugged up already. Yep. Now, here's where we find out that this is not the fucking Necronomicon. Because, <laughs> so they pull this book <laughs> oh, out. I know you're going with professor, this. <laughs> and they've got the professor, the guy with the horn. Hey, professor, check out this old ass book. And he opens it up and he flips through a couple pages. And within like 10 seconds, he goes, oh, it's a Necronomicon. <laughs> Here's what it says. It's in Latin. Bull fucking shit. Because we know from our Call of Cthulhu game that it takes at least, at least six years, six years dedicated every night, nightly, hour after hour reading it. Maybe, maybe you'll get through the preamble. Maybe. Months. It's six months. Every fucking book you find in Call of Cthulhu at some fucking tome or something. It's like, you know, I'm going to start reading this as well. You're not going to finish it, but your grandkids will finish it. <laughs> oh, good. Even once in English, it's like, well, you find this this thing. It's it, What language in English? How long does it take me to read? Six to eight months. <laughs> All right. I'm four months into the Necronomicon. What have I translated? For mom. The fucking dedication. That's all my friend. <laughs> So 
so yes, this is not the fucking Necronomicon. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, Shannon, actually finished reading that whole book. Just to say that much. So it was. it is possible. And then his character died. Because it was old. Very quickly. He, he went very <laughs> <Yes>. insane. <laughs> so my notes for this scene, just read, Necronomicon, drink. Miskatonic U, drink. drink. <laughs> Great old ones, drink. Dog Sothoth, drink. drink. Cthulhu, drink. <laughs> yeah, this is Easter egg parade. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, this was the most Ready Player One ass scene in any movie I have seen. More so than Ready Player One. But I like, too, that it's not, like, woven in like he's translating passages where it says, and this says, on the such and such, such, such. He just literally says, look, this is Yog sothoth He's the key to everything. It's just <laughs> as blatant as you can fucking get. And here are his stats. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck? Shit, he's got the Game Master manual. <laughs> all the, all the what the fuck I just dumped on. The scene that parallels this is even more what the fuck. Because this is when Shelly decides, yep. all this stuff is so fucking creepy, I'm going to go freshen up. But she first has to admire herself in the mirror. Yes. Like, oh, I so look good. We get a bathroom sequence, which starts with her disrobing in a mirror. This starts at the 55 minute and 17 second mark. It ends at 57, 24 seconds. It is a two plus minute sequence, most of which <laughs> is a single shot of her just getting in this tub. With she's already lit candles, pouring wine, and just going like, hmm, castle, oh, castle, sip, castle. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's it's just there to be salacious and dumb because the only plot point in there is that she's attracted to John, which we already fucking knew. Yep. And the only other plot element of it is that Marku, we find out, is in the wall peering through a peephole, whacking it from an angle where he couldn't possibly be seeing her. <laughs> like, even by, like, salacious nonsense. It's very pointless. It is so long, and it's nearly a single shot of someone sipping wine in a tub for no fucking reason. It's very gratuitous. It is solely just to show off her body. It is merely, uh, Roger Corman might say, production value. That's it. Ugh. It's, it's bad. It's a bad scene. They should have cut it. Now, Jake said coming into this episode that this movie had one of the worst scenes of any movie we've covered on the pod. My guess was this was it. This was it. I hated the shit out of this. No, I didn't think this was the worst scene. This is just pointless male gaze bullshit. Yes. It's awful. There's no reason for its inclusion. It serves nothing. But I, it no, there's another scene in this that I hated quite a bit more. I can't imagine, Jake, which one you're referring to. <laughs> it's a real fucking mystery. <laughs> This edged that one out for me. No, I look, I didn't like this scene. I, I watched it, you know, and I had to pause it afterwards. I'm like, what was the fucking point of all that? It's so Skinamax after dark. Yeah. It's like, wh- it takes away what from the are film. we doing here? And then it just shows Marco goes and gets jumped by the freak. I mean, you could have done that pretty easily without any of this. Yeah, no, they could have skipped this completely. Just him sneaking back in the castle. He goes and gets the whip. He goes looking for the freak. It finds him and beats him down. Next scene. Of course, this is more the professor, like, just dropping the Cthulhu mythos on everyone, like, the whole history. And then uh, John gets... (laughs) Drink. (laughs) Then John gets just frustrated with all the talk. It's clear that the reason why he's frustrated with the talk is because the professor has convinced Becca into keeping the book. That's it. Like, he's just like, you just cost me a shit ton of money, professor. Now I'm angry. Runs off and takes a downer. 
Professor, you stay behind with my girlfriend, where your professor offers that up. Here, let, take me to your mom's room where you found this so we can look at some other shit. Whereas John decides, well, I'm going to take everyone else and we're going to go basically sell this house for parts. <laughs> go into town and try and sell everything under this goddamn roof. This scene had my, when they get to town and start talking to the person who kind of gives them the lowdown a little bit, had my single favorite line in this movie by far is when they get to the talking the old lady mm -hmm. and she goes that castle pause is filled pause <laughs> <laughs> with evil like and my note just says holy shit like I, I love this so much because it's so utterly b movie <laughs> like you know and i get what they're trying to convey is that she's not a native English speaker, except everything else she says is perfectly cadenced and fine. She's 80 yard, yeah. <laughs> except this. <laughs> that castle is filled with evil. I'm like, what the Simpsons is this shit? I loved it. It also comes with a free topping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she does this random ass exposition dump <laughs> of talking about how, you know, oh, our cattle have been eating alive and you know, when Lavinia died, I thought all this shit was going to go away because there's some fucked up shit going on in this town and just dumping and dumping and dumping. And then some of the residents of the town have now gathered outside the window, at which point she's distracted by them and says, you know, get the hell out of here. And John assumes he's talking to them and says in typical pompous white man fashion, well, I think I'll be taking my business elsewhere. <laughs> But my favorite thing is, as they go to leave, there's all these residents, as we soon find out, they're all fucking cultists yep. who are all standing there. And they're obviously locals who you know came on to just do something, which is cool. But they're all just staring blankly as John's like, you know, what do you want? Uh, except one dude in the front just gives him a nice like, how do you do? Smiling. <laughs> there's just one guy front and center. It's like, how are you? Good day. Yaksathoth eat you. Good day. <laughs> Meanwhile, Professor and Rebecca are in there. I think this is where Rebecca has another vision. Yeah, vision of her mom praying and um, being abused by her father. Yes. You know, this is where she realizes, you know, maybe my mom is not connected with all this stuff. Maybe she got was stuck with it because of my grandfather. Is this the tentacle scene? No. No, that's the next okay. one. That, that's coming. Okay. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> but before we get there... John and his crew make a call, and this is where we realize that not only is the castle not on the market, but the estate manager has no idea who Marku is. So it's just like, oh, shit, we've been given the runaround by someone. We have no idea who this guy is. And then randomly on the phone booth is a picture of a face with a tentacle beard again. Yeah, spray painted on. Cthulhu has a posse. That was my first one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is... May or may not be considered spoilerish at this point, but we never actually see anyone with a tentacle beard. Not once. Nope. Have you not seen Pirates of the Caribbean? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> They've been just the statues have been fine with it. But somebody graffitied this shit on a random phone booth, which implies to me that someone saw one of these motherfuckers around town. This is Chekhov's tentacle beard, as far as I'm concerned. All right. You put it out there. You should have pulled the damn trigger. All right. <laughs> For this bit, go see Dagon instead. Yes. It very much felt like a nod to either Cthulhu and or Deep Ones, but they went too far with it and they never did anything with it. I felt that was a loss on the movie. The graffiti could just be a Pirates of Caribbean fan. Just saying. It's possible. If not implausible. We love Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Nye can do no wrong. 
If we watch any films with Bill Nye in it, I'm going to gush. Bill Nye is huge in Albania. B- Bill Nye is my Mighty Mighty Boston's for Jake. All right. It will make a film. Michael T. Williamson won Best Supporting Actor for Species <laughs> 2, and Bill Nye is number one in Albania. <laughs> That'll be the next T-Public survey put up. Bill Nye, number one in Albania. <laughs> I feel like five years from now, we're going to publish a Scary Stuff Encyclopedia filled with nothing but the ridiculous bullshit facts we've just made up in these episodes. The official handbook of the Scary Stuff Universe. <laughs> I want a Cthulhu has a posse sticker now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Marku, we find out he's been chained up by the freak who's scuffed up his face a bit, bites him on the chin. Tries to feed him some of the doctor. John then finds out his friends have smuggled coke in, <laughs> have specifically asked smuggled coke in. And so they then begin doing this cocaine, which plot wise is the immediate thing is he promised Rebecca that they wouldn't. But it's also fun because between them getting drunk and doing coke in this sequence, it kind of repositions the freak as a Jason Voorhees-esque moral adventure. <laughs> Where yes. it starts killing all the people who are doing drugs and having sex. So they're doing drugs, and the professor keeps reading the book, and he's like, oh, oh, hey, it says here the old ones are prophesized to cast the world into darkness or some shit. They then find a secret passage in the wardrobe, and so the professor and Rebecca are wandering around there. Everyone else is just getting absolutely trashed, and Shelley, who John was flirting with in the opening, then tells him, you know, hey, let's go fuck while your girlfriend's distracted. And he's like, okay. At this point, he's just giving up all fucks. You know, he just lost a ton of cash. She's off well, the professor. Not all of them. <laughs> He's got one last fuck to give. <laughs> <laughs> There's precisely technically one two. two. Technically two. Technically two. two. <laughs> but while they're leaving, this is also the scene where the one per okay, I realize you found them names, but I'm gonna refer to them as the unnamed friends for the rest of this film. Oh, that's fine. So this yeah. is where unnamed one grabs a hold of unnamed two's head. He's like, I know you're falling unconscious, but here, drink this wine. <laughs> it just starts shoving <laughs> wine into his face. The guy's barely, like, coherent. He looks like he's already sick, and he's yeah. just funneling one wine. <laughs> wine will keep the bile down. Have some more wine. <laughs> it's like, this is how you kill people, all right? <laughs> this, is, this is how you get a stomach This also beat. gives us the movie's default quip, which is that as they're talking to each other, and they're like, what's... John always gets the girls. What does he have that we don't have? And he's fucking castle. It's like, oh, fucking castle. A castle. All right. Which brings us, we were talking earlier about these kids being so young and it it having a younger cast. And Nick talked about having an older cast could have been potentially beneficial. And it's one of the things I wanted to mention, which if you're going to have a young cast, you really need to have the dialogue have some sort of snap to it. Yes. Or at least try. And this is just a bunch of drugged out folks wandering around going, hey, castle on repeat. Everything yep. I've fucking seen is, well, Castle. And that's just like, ah. And it's getting, I don't think the script of this movie is bad. I think structurally it's pretty interesting in a lot of ways, but a lot of the dialogue is just really bland. So it's, whether it was washed out in a rewrite or whatever, I don't know. But yeah, just it was like, oh, can you please punch up the dialogue a little, please? I'm telling you, if they were older, it would have been better. Yeah, the problem is, is at this point, if they were older, it would have been you and I in that scene. And I don't really <laughs> want to see myself in this film. <laughs> But this is 100% the situation that would have been you and I in this scene. Here, have a little bit more. Fucking castle. 100% this would have been Nick and I if we were in this film. Fucking castle. I don't like realizing that now on air, but it's true. And uh, yeah, so it goes. So screwed up boyfriend and Shelly go off to a room where they start drinking a bit more, making out, getting naked. 
He does some coke off of her boob. This is the scene. Then uh, she ties him to the bed using manacles that are already there. Everything about this scene is fucking terrible. So then Shelly <laughs> Shelley blindfolds him with her panties. And the freak is watching them from the closet as they start getting down and nasty. And it, it just flat out comes out and like secret black ops kills Shelly silently. Go to sleep. Done. Except it's not secret. It's loud. <laughs> and then it like proceeds to eat a bit of her neck. John's way too high to realize what's going on when it gets naked. And this is when we learn one of the big definitive changes in the movie is that we're no longer talking about an abused son that became a castle freak. This is a daughter with a definitive how I, it's a alien vagina, I guess is because because it's it's more front and center. Her bits look like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, but to scale, it's they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're massive and and they're like you know whereas like most bits are aimed lower on a torso that it's like just below her belly button it is it's a fascinating choice they went with it was it was very much like well we need to make sure people see this you go i can fix that but are you sure you're like yeah just roll go with it like no this was a bad idea this was the wrong move (laughs) oh my god it's um it's intense i did not expect it everything about this scene is awful from them getting into the bedroom to the end of this scene is f- fucking terrible. The presence of the manacles doesn't make any sense. Well, that's not true. The blindfolding them does. I mean, it's whatever. The, the blindfolding makes sense. That's just kinky. The manacles being there makes sense, but it's not in a pleasant fashion. Because what it comes down to is, let's be honest here, the manacles are not there for the freak. Well, right. Which means that was probably Lavinia and her grandfather. Maybe. All right, I'll give you it's that. The one. only thing that fits that, and, and it's, it's if you really a, want to justify it, then fine. It's the only thing that does justify it, but it's also just like, why did we need that? That's just overly uncomfortable and unnecessary. And you did it just because you wanted the scene, and you easily could have found any other reason or way to tie him up to make it just a kinky thing. And it, it's just, it was a bad move. It's either a you don't get it and you're just confused, or b you do get it and you wish you hadn't. Yes. Uh. Yeah, (laughs) it's just, no, it was a bad move. The other part of this is for him to have enough drugs in his system for him to not realize what happens, or at least understand that something has happened, he would not have the power of speech at this point. He would not be conscious. He should have been significantly more slurry, at least. She is made out of bones and (laughs) teeth and whatever else. And he's just like, yeah, this is cool. No problem. Little teethy there. What with your fucked up mouth? Yeah, she does a bit of fucking oral. I'm just like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. There's no way that didn't go off well. Yeah, but your your first thought is, if you've seen the original Castle Freak, probably the most notorious bit from the original Castle Freak is a sequence where the freak has kidnapped a woman and tries to do oral sex on her, but not understanding the process, literally starts to eat her. Yes. Which is what I expected here. Which is what you expect here. You're like, oh, it's going to bite his junk off. But it doesn't happen. It's, it's going to be much worse. I hate to say this because the phrase, like, out of context is unnerving. But this would have worked much better if she just ate his dick. All right? <laughs> it would yes, have made yes, it a hell of a lot more sense and fit the narrative. Without question. Yeah, uh, it was just, uh, so much better if she just, like, bit a chunk off. But no, it's like, he's like, oh, thanks. And he's like, wait, what? 
And this is the first moment I've ever reconsidered doing a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I disagreed. Yeah, if she had bit his dick off, much better than what happens. (laughs) Just the sound of Jake's headphones hitting the desk as he gets out. Like, I'm out. (laughs) Peace. I got to question my whole life. (laughs) But then she mounts him and just takes it to completion. And he doesn't notice. The only way I can justify this scene is if I thought they were making it, trying to play it for laughs. And they're not. And nothing else in this movie is played for laughs. So there's no reason to think that. So it's just awful. There is no way it's played for laughs. My note is I would have forgiven this entire sequence if the freak looked down the barrel of the camera and said, it's time to get my freak on. (laughs) So like you said, if they had gone, like we're, we're going just for laughs, it would have saved it. If this had pivoted into scary movie territory right here, fine. But it didn't. It played it dead serious, and there's just no way, and it's just terrible. There's only two ways this could have worked, and that's one, they recreate the original scene, and she just basically eunuchs him right there. And that would have been a good, horrific, oh, dear Lord, what's happening scene. Or I'd have cheered. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Or you skip the oral completely, and you establish he's more fucked up and wasted than he is. He was blind, stinking, drunk, and high, and it just mounted him. I could almost forgive it. Which he wasn't. I mean, he had yeah. a few bottles, you know, few, some wine and a line of Coke. He had a line of Coke. He had, was on some downers. He had some wine. So he was mixing. I'm he not going to incriminate anything here, but I'm just saying. <laughs> he was mixing three drugs. Not enough to not realize you're fucking a freak. Now, I, I understand that I think the math on the drugs works because, you know, one plus one is three when it comes to like substances. But he was on three different things. So he should have been significantly fucked up, but he doesn't play it right. He's way too coherent. His speech is too clear. He is not acting like someone who's on three different substances at once. And it takes away from the scene. Once again, I don't want to get myself in any trouble here, but I'm just saying he would have had to be on a lot more amount of the substances that he was on for this to like, look, the first time he encounters the freak, he smells her immediately. This one, she's breathing in his damn face and all she eats is she just ate his, his. I don't think she ever goes near his face in this one. She just kind of mounts and stays up. She's not far enough away that he could not smell her. I respect that, but he was also... Okay, I say... You were, you were you given can, one downer no, and no. a line of coke way too much credit for distorting reality. But he's also like his third bottle of wine. The dude's like wasted. But again, I don't think he acted it right. I think if he if the actor had done a better job portraying how wasted he was, I think it would have done it better for the scene. I think I'm glad we're not one of those podcasts that has to go out and try and prove things. <laughs> I was just about to say, so it's, it's this episode on Mythbusters. We're All not right. Mythbuster in this, but I'm right. One line of coke and one downer. All right, giddy up. I, I would rate this as the single worst scene in a film that we have done for this podcast. The only other thing I could come up with was, well, Born entirely. All of it. All of Born was worse than this. I liked Bourne way more than this film. Oh, wow. Uh, what the fuck? Or possibly the um, brain damage blowjob scene. Didn't really care for that. At least that made more sense. <laughs> uh, but no, to my mind, this was... But at least those films had some merit. Well, all right. Look, Bourne didn't have any merit, but nope. I liked it more than... Well, Bourne at least was trying to be a comedy. Trying? This was not or trying. This was to trying to be... <laughs> no, it was trying to be a comedy. Uh... This was trying to play it straight, like play this scene serious. And I, I think you're giving Bourne way too much credit. 
This scene was not without a, a sense of humor entirely because this is where they kick in the electric guitar on the soundtrack for this sequence. <laughs> so there's definitely a degree of, yeah, play it to the hilt. And, but it is played straighter than it should be. Like this scene is absolutely in there to shock you. Yeah. And it doesn't work on any level. I think it's just gratuitous dumb shit. And it really, like, I was barely hanging on by a thread at this point. I really wasn't. I was already deep in the tank for hating this movie. <laughs> but it still could have been redeemed. And there's stuff at the end I liked. But this scene alone so far counterbalances anything I liked in this film. It just, it's, yeah, it's terrible. I don't think it was that bad. I think it was poorly executed. I think you're bad and you're poorly executed. <laughs> So maybe we should move on from arguing about sex and drugs on our horror movie podcast. All right. So John and Rebecca. Eric keeps reaching for the bell. Like, should I ring the bell? It's should right, I ring the tuning fork? Should I? <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, where's the damn bell? It's been here. I've held off. But no, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I feel like us arguing about how much you can feel on Coke merited a few all right. I'm going to throw something else. One more thing about this scene. Oh, Christ. This doesn't really pay me. <laughs> I still didn't realize it was a girl. What? what? Didn't even occur to what? me at this point. And it what? wasn't until. Well, because I just assumed it was castrated. Like in the original. Uh, it was, okay. <laughs> I didn't think that hard about that. You have just invalidated like most of your complaints. <laughs> no, I, it doesn't change anything. Your in the ability of observance of, and nuance is just woo. <laughs> I just, I still wasn't really thinking about it because it's not like the scene wouldn't have worked just exactly the so same with a dude. The massive vagina in the front of this thing didn't give you a clue, well, but it didn't look like a vagina to me. It looked like he was, you know, missing bits, like it was castrated, like in the the original. No. Just no, just there, no. There was nothing about Absolutely that that particularly not. resembled a vagina no, to me. No, it even she, okay, she even had like little like misshapen breasts. I mean, that, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> There's your bumper right there. Oh my god! Oh my god! Well, but I mean, I, it's mostly because I was just still very much thinking of it as a dude. So my mind just said, "All right, well, whatever, sure, the weird looking dude, but okay." I had through like the whole beginning going like, she looks kind of feminine. That might be a woman. I think she's a woman. And then I got this scene like, yep. I didn't at any point think about the, even in this scene, I didn't really think about the gender until they call her the daughter later. Oh my God. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> when I realized it later on, it didn't change my opinion of the scene any. It was still stupid. All right. So, yo, John calls for help. The friends come and find him covered in blood and Shelly dead. Take him a while to spot her, too. Yeah. They let him loose, and he's pissed, and they decide to go avenge her death. This, this scene, sorry, what? there's one thing in this scene where they find him. The way he goes to unlock the cuffs. Oh, because he walks over him. Did, yes. Because he goes through over the bed. Be, it's, yeah. it's one of those things. It's like, I understand why they did it, because they don't want him to find the body just yet. But that is so... Not how any human would do that. No, yeah, it was it's, so it's ridiculous. The problem is it, it comes off mildly like he's just that like wasted and he's just being like lazy and whatnot. But you're right. Even in that situation, he would have walked around the damn bed. Like I get why they did it, but it's so fucking awkward. It's not an action you should notice. Like you should be aware that he's unlocking him. But in this case, it's like, what the fuck is he doing? To accomplish what they wanted to do, it'd been much cleaner if they just had John undo his own manacle on that side. 
Like if they did the first one and then gave him the key and he undid his own manacle, you would accomplish the same goal with without going around the bed and without having to. De- yeah, it, it, it was it was poorly done. And they find the key that she tosses across the like they make a point of seeing her throw it away without finding the body. I'm like, you two, the, you, you were the it's like Shaggy and Shaggy. <laughs> no Scooby to be the brains of the operation. <laughs> anyway, it was just one of those minor things and that's poorly done and it, uh, it for whatever reason it got under my skin why did i open my fucking mouth about italian police procedure in the original <laughs> <laughs> look nick if i walked in and you were chained to a bed covered in blood here's how i would unlock you. <laughs> well but that that's one of the problems with this movie and, and a lot of these movies is that there's nothing naturalistic about the way anybody acts no, or yeah, reacts to anything. This is particular. And after a while, yeah. when it just gets so piled on, and it, and that's to my mind the fault of the director, just yes, not framing things like the way people do it. You know, and as a writer, it's one of those things you have to ask yourself every time you write. Like in this scene, is this how people would actually react, or am I trying to move my plot points along in a very unwieldy fashion? And for whatever reason, this just little bit of that got stuck in my craw. That's fair. It was poorly done. So then we go to the professor and Becca, where they are still searching the secret passages of the castle, and they find uh, the freak's living place, where here they find a journal of Lavinia's, where it's the big exposition dump of, if you haven't figured it out yet, the grandpa had Yog sothoff possess him. And then during the ritual at the altar, surrounded by the cultists, he impregnates Lavania. And then she gives birth to twins, one a beast and one unknown. And they separate the twins to prevent their father's return. And they don't mean grandpa. Although grandpa's pretty fucked up. Yep. Grandpa is he's real fucked up. I like the mask on that he had on in the, in the sequence. Yeah, I like the makeup in this scene right up until his whale dick comes out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. But this bit raises questions now that they've established. So this is a reworking of the plot of the original to make it more Lovecraftian. Well, it's very much following the plot of the Dumbwich Horror. Yeah, and which is interesting, but it raises the question. It was like, well, wait a minute. So then why was Lavinia doing what she's doing? <laughs> why did she spend her whole life beating the shit out of her one kid in the town where she knows all the cultists live because they watched her grandfather do this to her? Why do you just keep in the shit? Well, no, she gives up the one normal child to adoption to keep it far away from the bestial child, because if they're together, they will complete the ritual. At the same time, the bestial child is very much. I get the impression that while you have the freak in the original has the look and appearance it does because of abuse. Mm hmm. I get the impression that while some of this freak's look and appearance is abuse, it's also natural to its essence. Like some mm-hmm. portion of the, of its being was born this way because it's the bestial side of Yogg-Sothoth, which very much fits in the Dumbwich Horror. In Dumbwich Horror, you had the two offspring. Wilbur Watley is the more human looking one, which you find out later he's not that as human as you think. But he's the face that can go around in public of the two twins. And the other one is a massive rampaging eats cattle monster. And they just kind of brought this down, made them both more human. So you have the one that's basically completely human and the other one, it's human-esque. You know? So she takes on the appearance more of her father than her mother. And you get the feeling that Lavinia was holding on to her 
and trying to save her soul. Yeah, that's what she says at the opening, yeah. Right. And so she's a self-flagellant, so she was using similar tactics with her kid. Yeah. It's just it it the the way it plays out, it's like that retroactively raises a lot of questions in terms of how you decided to play this out. Yeah. If you're gonna do that, you need to do more to establish the predicament that we're in. It would have been nice to have a quick little like minute or two montage of the years between that and now. Like how they got well, right because why. why didn't this happen right when they were born? They were united then. They uh, needed if the whole because there's well, not like any ritual happens. It's just they're reunited and he comes back. Spoilers: I think they needed to have hit puberty. Never says that. Well, it, it implies that. Definitely get the feeling that certain things need to be possible before this will happen. I mean, I guess, but it never actually spells out any of it. It just says, you know, once they're reunited, Hill will come back. But there's no like ritual or anything that happens unless you count John impregnating the freak. That was my guess, is that that was part of the ritual. Again, almost everything with the actual rite is inferred. You get the very general, high-level version of it, where it's, hey, they do this, she gets pregnant, has the twins, separate, come back together, it's done. Everything else is nothing but inference, even to the doctor's death happening to mimic one of the pictures in the book. When the professor says earlier that everything has been planned and put into place by the old ones, you get the impression that everything that's happening is on purpose and for a reason. But since they keep you out of that, it's all guesswork and sloppy and confusing. You can put the work and in, nonsensical. And you can put the work in to make sense of it and fill in the gaps, but you really shouldn't have to work that hard for a movie. I'm glad to hear you admit that just once. <laughs> in fact, I would like Eric to cut a soundbite of that to play during future episodes. On a little button, like, you know, those buttons you press and it says good job or whatever. I want one of those that says you shouldn't have to work this hard for a movie. And it's in Nick's voice. That's what I want for Christmas, guys. We're going to have to get a soundboard for this podcast. So we get back to John and his crew looking for the freak to take it out and get revenge for Shelly's death. They're so fucking incompetent at this. It's amazing. They gear up like the damn A-team. And they find Marku chained to the wall where the freak has left him. And he's basically like, please get me up before she comes back. They're like, why should we trust you? And he's like, I can help you get out of here. And John's like, nope, we're not getting out of here. We're going to find that thing and get rid of it. And Marco's like, okay. I love that they don't even acknowledge the drug dealer's body here. No. <laughs> doesn't even come up. There's just like fucking another body here. Nobody even looks at it. Nope. We cut real quick to uh, Rebecca and the, and the professor. And Rebecca's like, I think this is all bullshit. I think this is all made up just so my grandfather can abuse my mother. And unfortunately, she's just lost and confused in all this. And the professor's like, I don't know. Let's get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he has drank the Kool-Aid. He is on board with this book. He's like, you can think what you like. I'm going to go look more into this. (laughs) And uh, several men in the town now hear what I refer to as the call, the prophecy. It's like some kind of like whippoorwill in the air or something. They all just look up. It's the two old dudes sitting at the bus stop. Yeah. Yep. And the taxi driver. They just all sort of go, hey, I hear birds. Young Satan, let's go. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay. It's prophecy o'clock. Yep. Again, a lot of we're not going to explain this to you. We're just going to do it. And it didn't happen as soon as she arrives at the castle for no good reason. Even though they're technically reunited. Well, they haven't held hands yet. That's the big key moment later on. Oh. Gotcha. So John and his crew get weapons and chains. Marku suggests they split the party. They're all like, yeah, it's a great idea. It's like, no, this is nefarious (laughs) from word go. 
The professor hears the crew yelling and leaves Beck alone to investigate, at which point the sisters find each other. Becca reaches out and kind of loving, you know, trying to accepting because she can't see what's exactly looking like. And her mother's voice just screams, no! And they split up and go their separate ways. Yeah, Freak now encounters Larry and Chuck, who are... <laughs> Larry in particular is very excited about finding these weapons. Giving Chuck a pep talk about, yeah, we're going to go fucking murder someone. It's going to be fucking great. I love it. The one guy's like, we need a strategy. And then one's like, we have a strategy. The element of surprise. One, two, three, go! And they just run in, and she immediately wrecks their shit and eats them. <laughs> With the sharpest whip of all time. Here's where we find out that the cat of nine tails deals mega damage. Because she, she swings it <laughs> once per person, and they are just nearly split open by this thing. Instantly eviscerated. They collapse, and then the freak goes to town eating on them both. One of them while they're still alive. The professor then is nearby and passes by an alcove where apparently the freak is giving birth to a Jello movie because it's just this <laughs> cascade of red and blue. And he just comes in and he says, you know, oh, professor is all in at this point. Yeah. And this is where we get the reveal that he's not just curious about this stuff. He wants to be an active participant because he tells the freak, I want to see the gate of Yug Satha. I want to see what's going on. <laughs> At which point she releases her vaginal tentacle and grabs him around the neck. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and of course he's into it. He's like, I can see everything. I'm like, okay, I guess it's a good thing when the tentacle descends from your vaginal canal and wraps around you. So I, I spent some time pausing this to try because there's a quick cut in there. <laughs> Well, he says I can see everything. There's a quick cut of something, and I wanted to see what it was. And oh it's just God. a fucking landscape. Well, you can see that shit in a window. You don't need the tentacle wrapped around your goddamn neck. Same principle as the invisible flies. Is like, hey, we couldn't afford cool shit for this. Fucking Cthulhu rotic asphyxiation here, and you don't need it. What do we have to put in here? Well, we got this travel flyer for Albania. All right. Albania. Albania. So at this point, John and Marku are alone as they're searching, and Marku like immediately betrays him. <laughs> My note here was curse Marku's obvious and pointless right. betrayal. <laughs> nice reference. We learn that Marku is actually the one who killed Lavania and arranged for Rebecca to come back home. And he claims that once the children are united, the gate will open forever. Uh, of course, before he can kill John, the thing shows up and gouges his eyes out and kills him. And then John ends up running into the freak outside and challenges it. And they go for an exchange of blows. Which parallels the scene in the original movie, the balcony fight. Yeah. Pretty much. Ish. Yeah, he's able to knock it to the ground and is starting to come in with a killing blow when all of a sudden Rebecca comes in saying, you know, no, no, please don't kill her. It's my sister. It's my sister. She ends up getting hold of a weapon. John is essentially like, I'd like to see you do something, Mia, because you're fucking blind. And he's talking down to her. And with a one in a million swing, whack her, one swing and instant death on John. But the freak decides to seal the deal. Yeah, it may or may not have been instant death, but. Do you think at this point is when John realizes he pulled off sisters? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lordy. That's why he let his defenses down when she was swinging. He's like, I'd like to see you try to commit. Wait, sisters, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> he. The way he reacts, he doesn't know that he slept with somebody else. It's possible he that he thinks that Shelly died after their sex. Absolutely. Yeah, like she climaxed it and a head spun off or something. I mean, I you gotta be arrogant to believe that, but But you know, it 
the sister comes up, decides to uh, ensure the job is done, and smashes John's head into chunky salsa. Straight up Seth Rollins' curb stomp on this is just, oh, it is so gruesome. It's nasty. Ugh. And that, so now, the local villagers, aside from the one shopkeeper, who's apparently the only woman in town who isn't in on this shit, have now assembled, and they are all in on the professor instantly being their leader. <laughs> because the professor, after getting this vision, is outside, and he's like, yeah, fucking Yogg Sothos, you know, team spirit. And they're like, yeah, fucking yeah, lead us, horn rim glasses, fucker. I didn't take that takeaway. I didn't feel like he was taking over. I felt like the cultists were like, we don't need to do anything but show up and watch at this point. Yeah, Whatever yeah, the fuck yeah. he's doing, who gives a shit? He's out in front with the book, just like, oh, embrace your sister. The cultists don't do shit in this. It's right. all Marku. He's like the only one that takes any kind of action in this entire film. No, absolutely. Like, yeah, I'll do it. The rest, fuck you, I'll do it. The rest of them. Lazy ass cult. <laughs> it, it feels like the majority of the cult is like, it'll happen. It's prophecy. We trust in it. We'll wait. And then it happens like, okay, it happened. We're here to watch. But yeah, they're not active participants in the prophecy. They're merely here to worship and witness. Lazy ass cult. Lazy ass cultist. (laughs) Lazy ass cult. (laughs) Professor is just saying, you know, embrace your sister, Rebecca. Embrace your father. Embrace your family. And the freaks just like, oh, hey, hey, come up with me on this stage. And they just quickly scamper up. And Rebecca's like, oh, okay. Runs up hand in hand with her sister. And then the sky opens. Before the, the Yag Sotha shows up and he's still reading from the book, he says, time for the old great ones to return. That's got to be a fuck up, right? It's got to be. He doesn't say the great old ones, even though he has said great old ones before and it's always great old ones. But in this one, he flips it and he says old great ones. My theory here is he said it. Nobody noticed it until edit and they couldn't go back to Albania to reshoot it. Possible. Or they just said, ah, good enough. But it's it's, it's got to be a fuck up, right? I they think didn't it's a flip fuck. it I think right it's a fuck there. up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely has to be. So at this point, the sky opens up and you can actually see Yog sothoth you know, like in the clouds. And then the freak releases its full vaginal tentacle into the ground just to, you know, chill and relax. It's fine. It's kind of like it's kind of like <laughs> it's that just there. It's, it's, it's like a garden hose. It just coils on the ground. It's like when you come home and you sit down in your chair and you undo your belt buckle and just let it all hang out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It's like you've been at a wedding in a tux that doesn't fit and you finally just you you let your gut hang out a little bit. That was this. I've been keeping that dick in all day. All day, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just let it all hang out. At which point, Rebecca starts crying out in pain, like labor pains. She falls to the ground. Her water breaks, although it's mostly blood. And then this large ass yellow eye shows up between her legs, which in and of itself would have been fine. Except then it like... (laughs) discharges a large amount of flesh or whatever the hell you want to call it it's something starts surging forth yeah Yeah. and then fade to black credits so let's let's discuss this scene a little let's break it down (laughs) time to unpack yog sothoth showing up is cool yes it is a really neat scene well done but why did they start doing the the hard still shots here yes the freeze framing mm-hmm. why do they freeze frame never in, in the rest of the movie is there freeze framing i mean unless somehow the credits were freeze framed and i didn't really pick up on that it didn't seem like it but whatever but there's not in any of the film part of this and it's just like wait, are we trying to channel the 70s here it 100 reminded me of night of living dead where it ends with all the still shots yeah okay except it's just so it felt very awkward i mean one could argue that the gate is opening, the world and reality is unraveling, and that it was meant to be a jarring and disjointing 
view of the situation. And it's supposed to be awkward. and It's supposed to be unnerving and odd. Well, that's fine, but you don't need it at all. You've got a god in the sky. Yeah. You've got an unspooled tentacle. You don't need any of the other extra trickery. It's literally distracting in a moment where you're already going, what the fuck? I admit you, know? you probably don't need it. I just don't think it breaks the moment. It did for me. It, yeah, absolutely. It I mean, I'm, me. I'm assuming it's another 70s uh, Italian movie throwback. I'm guessing again, I'm not as well versed on that stuff as I should be. That's just my assumption. But yeah, it's just the way they pulled it off. There's a lot of bits and pieces here. I mean, I guess you could say this kind of parallels the stuff with the car accident earlier where they intersplice these just shots of just a black screen in between cuts. So it kind of parallels that. You can see what the intent is in a lot of this, but yeah, it's just not executed well. And, and like Jake said, comes off as just distracting and pulled me out of it. And if you're going to do all these homages to Italian horror, why not film this in Italy? Or film it in Albania and say it's Italy. Lie to them. <laughs> of all the movies that didn't go to the Giffen School of Filmmaking. <laughs> so if that wasn't confusing enough, we now... Thanks to the mid-credits scene, we you are forced, 100% forced, to fill in so many damn gaps. Like, I guess it didn't end the world. Yep. And I <laughs> guess the professor turned out okay. Maybe he helped stop, you know, the end of the world. Like, he just wanted to see it. He didn't actually want to end it. He just wanted to see what was going on. And he was like, crucial. Nothing. You get no actual wrap-up on why the world still exists or how things work. Okay, help a brother out. Tell me what the mid credit scene was, because I didn't know there was one. I turned that shit off as soon as the sploosh <laughs> came out of her. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So here's how we go. We get the scene of the professor holding the Necronomicon. So this is clearly after the castle, not before. Mm-hmm. Walking up some steps and entering an office where we see a professor. Behind a desk with a library, he has a Miskatonic University mug. So it's Armitage. No. No. (laughs) So the professor is there and there's another student sitting in front of him. And the professor behind the desk looks up and goes, ah, Armitage, come on in. This is the moment you learn the professor is Professor Armitage. And he comes in with no context about why he's there. Other than I'm guessing he's bringing the professor the Necronomicon. Armitage looks in, sees the student sitting there and goes, West. At which point, the student stands up wearing a white lab coat, and you see a glowing green vial of serum on the desk. Other reagent for reanimator. I was like, oh, shit! I loved it! Don't get me wrong here, okay? It makes no fucking sense whatsoever how we got from the ending we had to this little moment. But the whole ending it with, we're gonna keep going, and we're doing reanimator next. I was on board for this. I was very excited. I loved it. Now I understand why you like this movie. <laughs> yes, yes. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I realize you guys didn't like the professor character that much, but I enjoyed him. And the idea of him being involved in a reanimator like next movie, that made me happy. I loved it. I was excited. Oh, he was the least of my problems. <laughs> I can't believe I have to go watch this fucking part of this movie again because I didn't know this whole scene was here. I could have had so much more to make fun of Nick with if I had known the scene was there. <laughs> I appreciate being playful to put in a reanimator reference and and an Armitage reference. But again, it's when you're thrown into it, it's so jarringly incongruous with the scene immediately before it. It was like, wait, what? Yes. And then on top of that, it's, it's so just kind of shoddily put together. 
it just it left a bad taste in my mouth to the point where my note on it was basically you want to make a reanimator reference i'll make a reanimator reference movie sucks details later <laughs> yeah because the world ends it should at the end of this movie except not apparently yeah i mean at just that albania point, i don't know at that point in the film you have no protagonists between the end of we saw and this was it an orbital strike on yog sothoth or something eh, who knows I mean, I can come up with some endings for it myself, some worse than others. I mean, the one I'm thinking right now is awful, but <laughs> but that doesn't, again, you shouldn't have to work so hard for a movie. If you're going to... Again, there it is. Oh, I'll say it again, Nick. Get me all hot and bothered. <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to have... <laughs> Jake is reenacting the freak's tentacle bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can see everything. <laughs> If you're going to tease a sequel, you need to have a movie that actually doesn't end the fucking world. And based on the fact that there were no protagonists left who had any sort of agenda to do that when fucking Yog sothoth shows up. Yeah, it was odd. Well, the next movie starts with, hey, remember that time we all got high in a castle and saw Yog sothoth in the sky, but it didn't happen because we'd done one line of coke and a downer. <laughs> that was weird, huh? That 1926 wine, man, sure makes you hallucinate. Those Albanian downers will wreck you. Albania. <laughs> Albania. And Melania. <laughs> so yeah, it's Castle Freak. So we all agree. Five stars. Out of 15? I give it a solid three out of five. All right. I've seen significantly <laughs> worse. <laughs> I am glad you enjoyed this. For me, this is... It's not the worst movie we've done. That's still bad biology. Oh, yeah. This is far from the worst. This is far from the worst. Not that far. Not for Jake. For me. For me. For it, is, it is far. I know, I know it's near bottom of the barrel for you. It's, it's not great. I hated so much about this film and the way it was done. And But again, I like the Albanian history I learned. <laughs> that was fun. My greatest takeaways of this film is everything I learned outside of it. <laughs> I like what the movie wanted to do and what it wanted to be. I think the director didn't do a good job, but I think there's elements in this that make me think that he does indeed have a future of making horror movies that aren't terrible. Yeah, I'm kind of where you are. I'm not I'm not as down on it. First off, let me say if if you enjoyed it, Great, you know, like I said, like what you like, not telling anyone the wrong, because I've seen... Yeah, it's not like Bad Biology, where if you enjoyed it, you're a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I've seen some folks who are really grooving on it. If you groove on it, great. Like I said, if you've seen the original Castle Freak, give it a shot. It is yep. absolutely worth a try. And if you like Lovecraft, give it a shot. It's worth a try. Yep. Because it's, you know, <laughs> Jake's wrenching his head like one of the little duders in Princess Mononoke at this point at that point. What did you just say? But no, it, on principle, similar to what Jake said, on paper, this is basically what I want from a remake. Yes. We're going to keep a lot of core elements of the original. We're going to update it. We're going to add some new dimensions and approach things from a different angle. So it's going to feel a bit unique, but we're going to keep these four bits of it so again great bones yeah if you were to give me like the log line on this like the one to two sentence pitch i'd have been like okay yeah that sounds can awesome. you dress really interestingly <laughs> sorry 
<laughs> he's just great bones. <laughs> My immediate thought is, also, and you dress really interestingly. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, shame on you. Anyway. So conceptually, it's great. There's one problem. I don't think it's very good. The makeup's pretty decent for the most part. I think the score has some good points. Like I mentioned before, structurally, it's kind of okay. And there are some good concepts. The dialogue is super bland. I don't think the acting's particularly great. And it is overlit and very poorly shot and put together in some places. So, yeah, I think the director's sensibilities in this were kind of a poor fit for some of the more interesting angles for this. Yes. Like for the notorious elements of Castle Freak's legacy, it's a great fit in terms of folks remember this as being, you know, that movie that you discover in the VHS store and you were legitimately shocked by how graphic it got and how it had this grungy, grimy feel to it. On that part, it carries forward the Castle Freak legacy. Great. Yes. But I think as a film, just personally, I do not think it's as good as the original. Again, I still think you're right with the lighting. And if they had had a better choice of cast and aging the cast, I think the whole of it would have improved dramatically. I think if they replaced everything but the script, (laughs) maybe. I mean, look, I didn't like the original. Let's go back to one. (laughs) If you can undo the entire filmmaking process, it might have had a chance. I think one thing it would have to do if you want to make it a better film that's fairly easy is you give you one person to truly root for. Because Becca, maybe, but she doesn't have enough of a personality for you to really feel even remotely attached to her as a character. And everybody else is just awful. Becca should be the protagonist, but she's left in the dark for the first half of the film. Everyone else is awful. When she finds someone who doesn't leave her in the dark, someone actually leads her along the way, she doesn't take over. In fact, he does, for the most part. The professor starts getting proactive and seeking out the freak and getting involved in the ritual and pushing things forward. She's very much just along for the ride and she should be the lead protagonist. It would have done a better job. She should be, but the movie just happens to her. Yes. She's merely a witness in a vessel and it takes away from the overall experience because of that. Yeah. And like I said, everybody else is just terrible. Yep. There's there's nobody to root for in this. I like the professor. I'm glad somebody does. Everybody deserves to be loved by someone. (laughs) The way he delivered every single line in this got on my nerves. Yes. (laughs) There was not one line from the professor that I thought was delivered well. Like, I'm not saying that that kid is a bad actor. I think he was doing what he was kind of told to do. It was a conscious choice to play that way. I think it was the wrong choice to the point where it just it got under my skin. Like, the only two I really didn't kind of dislike immediately were were Shaggy and Shaggy. And even them, they're obviously not good human beings. I just like that they're talking about David Icke and drinking Crown Royal out of a canteen. So, yeah, there was nothing for me to grab onto in this except the Cthulhu elements of it. And even those were so kind of name-checky and fanservice-y, it didn't feel as integrated or as interesting as it should have been. Because, like, the professor just immediately knows all of this shit as soon as he sees it. Yeah, okay, now you find out later he's Armitage. Okay, but it doesn't flow well. It doesn't work right for my mind. Like, it should be more of a discovery process than a statue falling on you and literally beating you over the head with it. And, like, I I love that they actually showed Yogg-Soth up at the end. That was nice. You know, they could have just shown an eye in the clouds or something, but they went all in, you know. They were using their whole ass, and I appreciated that. 
But it just it was one of those movies where it felt like every choice that they make is the wrong choice. But there are right choices. They just don't make them. So, yeah, it, look, I didn't like it. I thought it I wouldn't say it was a complete disaster because I can see how you would enjoy this film. I just thought it was bad. In the end, it was poorly done and a little too aware that it was poorly done and proud of itself for the choices. I, I don't know. It was like the arguing the, the freshman philosophy student of movies. I'm going to say one last thing to our Cthulhu enthusiasts out there. Potential alternate way to look at this. Don't think of it as a Castle Freak movie. Try looking at it as a Dunwich Horror movie with Castle Freak influences and additions. I think it handles the Dunwich Horror storyline better than the Castle Freak one, to be honest. And I think that might be why I took a lot more away from it than I enjoyed because of the Dunwich Horror aspects. It was better than that other Dunwich Horror movie we watched with the the dude from Quantum Leap. You're talking about the latest one, not his original Dunwich Horror, right? Because he's done two of them. Oh, whichever one we watched. Dean Stockwell has done two Dunwich Horror movies. One where he's like 70 and one where he's like 25 or 28. Yeah, it's the latter one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One good. The older one where he's younger is actually pretty decent. The, The newest one, not so much. So yeah, that's Castle Freak. That's Castle Freak. So one way or the other, thank you for Shudder for for putting it out. Glad to finally have a chance to watch it. We knew this was in development for a while, so it was a great Christmas present to finally get to see it. So yeah, I guess we'll be signing off at this point. So thank you so much for listening. This is Eric signing off. This is Nick. I know the gate. I am the gate. I can see forever. This is Jake saying that castle is filled with evil and also by our book. Scary stuff. Available on Amazon.com and wherever you buy books. Five-star rating. Worth your time. Makes a great stocking stuffer. Night, everybody. Good night. Adios. She even had like little like misshapen breasts. I mean, that, so do I.